Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 116 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, joined as always by the co-pilot, Matt Feuerstein. And Matt, this is probably one of the longest breaks we've ever taken on Through the Years. Normally we take, we go between two and three weeks. This time we've literally been a month, and I guess now we can say one of the reasons is you went to jolly old England, you went to All In, and I think it's safe to say that we can all blame you for everything that happened there. What the the good the good wrestling matches that people enjoyed? Uh, yeah, you're the good and the bad. You take the good, you take the bad, you take it all, and then we have Matt Feuerstein. Well, first of all, I want to say Happy New Year to my fellow Jews um, out there. But uh, second of all, uh, yes, I, uh, I I I didn't advertise it in advance uh, for a couple reasons, but. Partially, I am just superstitious, and I feel like if I make a big thing about how I'm going, I like would go- I've gotten sick or something, and uh, and like the whole trip would have been canceled, and I wouldn't have been able to go. So I did not uh, I did not uh, announce my uh, my travels in advance, but I did spend a week in a beautiful London, England, and the weather was great for that week, and I think that is definitely um, my um, you know due to my being there. So uh, you can thank me for. All in having good weather, and it was a, uh, it was an incredible spectacle. Uh, I will say that. And um, you know, whether you, uh, whatever you feel about the uh, all the attendance uh, drama, it was one of the most attended wrestling shows ever. I think that one is indisputable, right? I think we could say one yeah. of the most attended wrestling shows of all time. Um, Matt, let's ask you: Did you go through a turnstile? I did actually. It was we the- can confirm a one. We can confirm one, folks. Yes. One turnstiles were uh, were different. They were like. Like big old, like just your whole body goes through. Not like it, like have, we have in New York, where like you're just like walking through one, like with your waist, and like it pushes it. Never mind. You know, if you went to Wembley Stadium, you know the turnstiles I'm talking about. But they were, they seem pretty accurate. I got to tell you. So whatever the turnstile count was, I'm gonna believe it. Um, but uh, yeah, what I was thinking about as it relates to uh, what we do here at Through the Years is. How um, the wrestling world right now in uh, September 2023 is a pretty crazy place, as it kind of always is. But, you know, right now it's like, on the one hand, you have WWE literally becoming part of this mega conglomerate sports entertainment for real uh, corporation. And then on the other side of things, you have AEW, which, uh, while it's having its struggles, is uh, did do that all-in thing that... I can confirm it was extremely impressive. Um, on their side, they're just like diving more and more into this ROH 2006 era tribute <laughs> promotion more than ever. And it was really stark going to, uh, going all in and seeing it. It was just really bizarre as I watched the show open. The giant Wembley. I mean, listen, you saw it on TV, but really being there, that place is fucking huge. Like, I went to uh, WrestleMania, the two WrestleManias at MetLife Stadium, uh, WrestleMania 29 and WrestleMania 35. And, like, obviously, MetLife Stadium is really freaking big. Um, Wembley seemed that much bigger. And I know Wembley actually is bigger, but, like, I don't think, like, that much. But it seems so huge, I guess, because, like, without the stage and stuff, it just seems so epic. And then to look at the ring and I'm watching CM Punk wrestling Samoa Joe and it's like what universe did I just walk into that this happened and then a few hours later you have as part of a big entrance uh, Swerve Strickland 
wearing Jimmy Rave's robe, right? Paying tribute to Jimmy Rave on yeah. this massive scale. And then right next to him is Prince Nana, who I, I don't think we talk about enough. Prince Nana has not been, you know, a major figure in the wrestling scene, even on the indies for, you know, a really long time, over a decade. And now he's part of this, you know, big time act in AEW. He's has a major role in a major match in this major show. He's going to be continuing to be part of the, uh, the, with the Mogul Embassy. Like he's just suddenly a major player in wrestling again. We've been talking up Prince Nana and how much we wanted him to be like in WWE, right? For so many years. And now all of a sudden he's on TV. That's crazy. And then to top that one off, I'm sitting there watching, I'm in Wembley Stadium watching this giant main event on this giant show and who's a major player in it roderick strong like i you know who a guy that i've mostly watched in these you know small venues so many times through the years and now i'm seeing him in the main event of wembley stadium now i mean i know he wasn't in the match but he was a major figure in that match and now he's a major figure and then you just take go on to aw um you know i'm going to grand slam uh, later this week, I, I know that's. I mean, I don't think that's such news because I'm that, that's in my town. But um, you know, Roderick Strong has been you know a factored into the storyline going into that. But on that show alone, uh, the two big title matches on that show, three of the participants in those title matches were in the 2006 ROH for CZW Cage of Death match. And if you look at the rest of that match, um, you have. A, um, someone who is a backstage uh, producer in AEW, right? Um, you have mm-hmm. somebody who has been a major on-screen figurehead figure in WWE for the past few years. You have two people that were just recently let go from AEW. You have, uh, you know, one of AEW's top stars and possibly currently the best wrestler in the world. You know, one of them, you know, who's about to go on his uh, semi-retirement tour. Um, which I think my general conclusion from all this is somebody needs to get Nate Webb on TV. <laughs> You're not going to mention the Necro Butcher? Um, uh. You know, <laughs> let's just give Nate Webb his due for now. <laughs> He's ne- got his own thing. Yeah, yeah, Necro. You know, Necro could, come, Necro could come along. I mean, at least at least Necro had his moment in the sun and the wrestler and stuff. But, yeah. but you know what? I wouldn't be opposed. I would not be opposed to uh, – Getting showing some necro some love. I know he's been a more controversial figure in recent years, but you know it's wrestling. There's a lot of controversial figures in wrestling, and I think as far I mean, listen, unless I'm there's something there's a story I missed. I don't think he's like other than had weird opinions. I don't think he's done anything that people have wanted to cancel him for. Am I wrong about that? Did I miss something? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, look, I'm not up to date on the world of XPW and Necro Butcher as much as I should be, as much as we all should be. But, uh, uh, I, I normally only pay attention occasionally for like, oh, someone did a really weird mega angle or someone stabbed something into their penis. And then that becomes undeniable on social media and you have to see it apparently. Well, I didn't even hear about that second one. And no, I don't have to see it. <laughs> Do not. Don't have to see it. Um, so um yeah what do you think about all that that i just rambled about yeah no i definitely get those pinch myself like this is so weird moments they make me feel older they that in a way that they make me feel happy because it does kind of feel like you know not that we i was gonna say we won we didn't win anything if you saw my life matt you would know i have not a winner at much but um 
you know, it, feel, it, it feels good to all these guys that we were spent time fretting like, oh, they deserve to go on to big things. I hope they make it. I hope they make full-time livings. I hope millions of people get to see them. Like most of them, not all, you know, some deserving ones fall through the cracks, but most of these guys made it. And what blows my mind is we continue to get these weird sync-ups. Like we talked recently about how the Nigel McG- the first ROH show in London us covering that coincided with all in, you know, AEW's first show in London and the rumor of the Nigel Danielson match that got obviously got a uh, dashed when Brian got hurt. But then I was watching to the show we're going to be re- reviewing today. And I realized, Oh yeah, this is when they're about like two shows from now. They're building to a Roderick strong Samoa Joe match, which as we record this a few days ago on dynamite, that was like a major main event to build to a world title match on a, on a major um, episode yeah. of the show. And, and we're going to be reviewing that singles match in a couple episodes with Joe. Exactly. And the next show that we're going to review has the f- debut of the Matt Seidel, Christopher Daniels tag team, which as we're recording this they tagged together on rampage uh last night (laughs) yeah so it really is crazy just how much they're like it's funny because when when like tony Khan started aw everyone did the old mid-south tony he loves mid-south he's gonna be very influenced by that a lot of people over the years have now like gone on for like this isn't anything like mid-south or they're talking about oh you know I, I, i gotta say i don't think it's that much like mid-south myself no, no, I agree. I agree. But I'm just saying they're talking about his influence. They're talking about Mid-South. He, I mean, he even did that podcast with Phil Schneider talking about it. You know, they talk about how much he loved ECW. You can find that old classic video clip of him in the crowd of, at an ECW show, all this stuff. But yeah, if you, if you ask me like what promotion has it's the most fingerprints on AEW in some ways, it's Ring of Honor, which I don't think people connect with him as much. You know, I mean, obviously they connect with him in a big yeah, way. I mean, he I, mean, I mean, he does, he does own it. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, the sense of like, there aren't a lot of stories I think about him, like compared to people always reference the ECW stuff, the mid South stuff. They don't reference the Ring of Honor stuff. And clearly, you know, that's all over this company right now. It has been for quite a while now. Yeah. I mean, just the fact, I mean, just the fact that like when he bought ROH, it mostly became that. They were titles defended on AEW TV. Like the ROH part of ROH was sort of secondary to just these are AEW belts that we're using to to further AEW storylines, um, often involving major ROH wrestlers. It's a really, really crazy thing. Oh, so and the other thing I want to mention, just like I was thinking about it, you know, sort of just tangential, but I I mentioned that I went to uh, the two WrestleManias at MetLife Stadium, and you know, I, I just for my money, uh all in blew both of those shows away like i mean just in terms of atmosphere matches and stuff but those two wrestlemanias had i would say one great match each and it's funny to think wrestlemania 29 the one great match was cm punk versus the undertaker and wrestlemania 35 the one great match was daniel bryan against kofi kingston so it's like it just you can't i don't know how anyone could argue that ring of honor in this era was just like one of the most influential promotions ever. Like it didn't, it didn't change what wrestling was the way ECW did, but it sure did promote a lot of wrestlers who came to dominate the industry and be influential in their own right in the following uh, 20 years. So I think sometimes people underrate how important Ring of Honor was, Um, you know, and I, you know, I hope when, when Shane Hagedorn's book comes out, people see, 
you know, the whole breadth of what it actually was. I mean, I hope people listen to our podcast and learn that too, but it's just putting it in context, you know, and maybe we won't fully be able to do that until we finish this podcast, but it's just, it's crazy to think how influential it was. And the more I talk about it, the more I wonder, like, maybe even just the booking style and the wrestling style itself, maybe it was in some ways influential the way ECW was, not just in terms of the talent, but in terms of the style. Because obviously there wouldn't have been a, you know, a lot of what we saw in Raw Nitro without ECW. But there's certainly, it's certainly easy to say there wouldn't be a lot of what we see on Dynamite without ROH. And there probably wouldn't be a lot of what we see on WWE if it wasn't for ROH at this point. So I don't know. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm starting to uh, be sold more and more on the idea that Ring of Honor was maybe not quite as influential as ECW, but comparable in some ways. The one thing that kind of struck me just while you were talking about like the even the great WrestleMania matches like Daniel Bryan and and uh, CM Punk, you know, being in those WrestleManias you picked out and thinking about the influence of ROH is just like there are a lot of you know so many wrestlers, most wrestlers had us at least a stop in the indies before they um although you know there's a little bit sometimes you get someone that just comes from WWE developmental fully but usually they make a stop at the indies but I think one thing again that thinking about Ring of Honor just now, you prompting this, is how many people didn't just come from Ring of Honor, but like they came out of Ring of Honor into the bigger promotions fully formed. Like the CM Punk you got in WWE and AEW is the CM Punk you got in in ROH. You know, the Brian Daniels... I I would say yes with a caveat that I think CM Punk when he first debuted in in WWE and in ECW was probably a little bit different but like when he finally got over and he was able to be himself he just went back to the version that we watched in ROH yeah but I, I think there's a lot of wrestlers whether it's Brian Danielson or other guys like they, they pick up other you know Brian Daniels, Danielson adds the yes thing and stuff but like so many of those wrestlers that succeeded out of ROH they kind of they 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 came out of it mostly who they were you know um you know so maybe I mean, a guy like Samoa, Seth Rollins Samoa, Samoa, changed Samoa Joe, Samoa Joe right like yeah so it wasn't even like oh they had they had some develop they had some, you know you they, you know you they got some initial experience you people they got noticed but then they really got you know polished somewhere else it's like no they were so many of those guys went to NXT and they were like people would do the old thing of oh they need to learn how to work to the hard camera when like they would go to NXT and instantly be the best wrestlers there and like clearly already ready for the main roster but well well if i mean i mean i think this speaks to ROH's influence in the sense of when you talk about yeah there are some people that you know just came through the WWE system in the 2000s there were a lot more of those people and it changed because they started getting guys from the indies and the guys from the indies got over as superstars. Um, and so you don't have as many of the, you know, the WWE produced, uh, wrestlers as you used to, you know, obviously mm-hmm. there, there's still, there's still some, I mean, you know, they're not, I mean, WWE still has their, uh, you know, their performance center and they still have people they train, but I mean, it's funny because there was an era just a couple of years ago, where AEW started and they were and WWE was like, you know what, we're not going to do the indie guys anymore, right? Like, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, that, no guy under six two again or whatever. Yeah, you know, that seems all that to, stuff. That seems to already be out the window. Yeah, but 
So yeah, that that was a crazy trip. I'm glad I missed you, Matt. Even though we did still talk on DMs, but I missed you, Matt. I'm glad you had a good time. We we um, had. I didn't do. I didn't just do wrestling stuff. I went sightseeing and enjoy and enjoyed jolly old England. Um, but uh, I don't think unless there's like a big contingent of my friends from here, I don't think I'm going to go back to the next all in just because, like you know, it's you a have lot to of do Nigel Danielson. It's a lot of money. And like, yeah, I feel yeah. like I have other trips I need to do in my life, even wrestling related. You know, I haven't been to Japan. Not saying I'm going to go to Japan next year, but it feels like something worth saving up for. I haven't even been to a, a you know, a CMLL show in Mexico. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, there's stuff like that. And of course, non-wrestling trips. I do have other interests. Um, I was just so. going to say, you should follow Danielson's last year, like the Grateful Dead or something. You should just be, if he goes to Mexico to take on Blue Panther, Matt, you got to be there. If I didn't have a job, I'd consider <laughs> it. Um, but, uh, I do want to mention one other thing before we start the show. Um, because I am introducing a new feature on Through the Years, a new feature that will be, uh, present in every single episode that we do from now on. Are you ready for it, Trevor? Yes, I am ready. All right. Well, okay. So we're, if you listen to the episode on Fight of the Century that we did with Phil Schneider, I mentioned that for uh, my 40th birthday this year, uh, my friends got me a Bret Hart cameo. And that was a very sweet gift and it was fun. Um, I also got another fun gift for my birthday. Uh, at some point in the past year or so, I was talking to a friend and I just jokingly said uh, – one of my lifelong goals is to have a trophy named after me. You know, like the Heisman Trophy or the Conn Smythe Trophy. I want a trophy named after me. And my friend was like, what would the trophy be called? And I said, I don't know, the uh, the Feuerstein Trophy or the Matt F. Trophy? And so when I went out to dinner with some friends for my 40th birthday, I received a box. And in that box was the Matt F. Trophy. <laughs> uh, so my my wish was made true. But, you know, I need to put this trophy to use. So on every episode of Through the Years from Now On, I am going to award someone or something the Matt F. Trophy. Um, There's no particular parameters to this trophy other than I think it deserves a trophy. So I'm going to try hard not to just be like, all right, this is the best match or this was the best wrestler, so they get the trophy. I'm going to give it to something or someone for some reason that is hard to explain. My only rule that I'm going to make for myself is I will try to explain why. But um, I will tell you – It would be funny if you didn't. If you were just like, this fan of the third row, he knows who he is. Matt F. Trophy winner. Yeah, I mean that would be funny. But you know, the Matt F. Trophy is no laughing matter, Trevor. So um, um, yeah, so I'll be honest right now. Even at this moment, I am vacillating between two possible winners of the Mad F Trophy for this particular show that we're reviewing. I will decide at the end of the show which of those two things, or people, or whatever, you'll find out, get to be their first recipient of the Mad F Trophy. Question, Matt. Yes. Can I win the Mad F Trophy? I can give the Mad F Trophy to whoever I want. 
interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to say, Matt, I am genuinely excited for this. That's a whole new dimension. This podcast, over half a decade in, we're switching it up. And I want to add, you know, inspired by you, inspired by the controversy this week of the PWI 500 coming out, as it always inspires controversy. Every episode starting this episode, we will now be doing the TWD 500, where I will be naming my top 500 wrestlers <laughs> after every episode based on what happened on that show. Um, it's going to be tough because most times, most Ring of Honor shows, man, I don't know if you know this, don't use 500 people. Not even quite, even half of that. I'm not sure any have. <laughs> I don't know. We're, 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 well, you know what? We're maybe, maybe, find maybe, out. Some, maybe some of those 2003 shows, maybe that special K <laughs> match in the first anniversary, maybe that had 500 people, but not <laughs> since then. So, yeah. So we're going to have a lot of fun today. It's going to be a fun episode, but... One quick thing I want to get to before we get to the fun parts, which is obviously we usually bring up when someone that is a Ring of Honor alumni passes away. Obviously, we've been off for a month. And between last episode and this episode, Terry Funk passed away. Um, there's not much we can really say that a million people haven't already said. We already said at the time, made our own comments on social media. You're going to see a million podcasts that paid tribute to him and websites far better than we could. I'll just say, obviously, he is one of the tippy-top legends of all time. He only had one match in Ring of Honor, but if you want to talk about someone who had influence to generation upon generation of wrestling around the world, it was Terry Funk. And then, likewise, while we're bringing up really notable tragic deaths, Bray Wyatt, who had nothing to do with Ring of Honor, he also passed away, obviously, way, way before anyone should pass away. And for both of them, as we always say, whenever we have to bring up someone that passed away, our condolences to, on the off chance, any family or friends, you never know who's listening to us through the years. Sometimes you get surprised. Um, Condolences. Hope you guys, everyone keeps on keeping on and, you know, you recover as best you can after a loss. I know it's tough. So with that said. Uh, we have one piece of news that between the last Ring of Honor show and this one, and it's really kind of a, it, it, it's, it's, Matt, it's a sign of, of the times we are covering because this is something we, that's happened once or twice before in through the years history, and it's happening again. It's a major angle development that's happening not on the DVD, not live in the building, not that didn't make to the DVD, but on live journal, the old blog site. So I'll go to the PW Torch first. In the torch that wrote, as part of a storyline, Chris Hero review revealed in his live journal that he and Claudio Castagnoli were the ones who stole the ROH World Tag Team titles from Austin Aries and Roderick Strong. Hero announced he had signed an open contract to partner with Claudio Castagnoli to challenge Aries and Strong on September 16 in Manhattan. So this this live journal happened on August 17. I'm going to read the Chris Hero live journal because this is this is such a class. This is just such a great bit of flavor for where wrestling was, where guys were cutting basically like EFED promo on the indies on their live journals to further real wrestling storylines so this is chris hero's live journal well boys i guess the cat is out of the bag no need for any further investigation there's also no further need for underestimation claudio and myself are capable of doing whatever we put our mind to we got the belts snuck them over to the uk and returned them without a single solitary soul being any wiser damn we're good when i left that note i wrote these will be ours it wasn't a threat 
I would even go as far as to say it was a declaration of absolute truth. As a matter of fact, come September 16th in New York City, myself and Claudio Castagnoli, the kings of wrestling, will be holding a pair of titles, Chikara's Campiones de Pareja and the Ring of Honor Tag Team Championship. How in the hell is that going to happen, you may ask yourself. I can understand your curiosity, but it's quite simple, really. I'm going to humor you and explain to you folks why things are falling into place the way they are. Claudio and myself are former CZW Tag Team Champions, and this past February, we defeated Skyda and Milano Collection AT in the finals of Takara's Tag World Grand Prix. By doing so, we became the first ever Campiones de Pareja, and then he writes in parentheses, Tag Team Champions, you morons. However, in the six months following that victory, we've only managed one defense. Why is that? Well, here at Chikara, to get a shot at the goal, you need to get amassed three consecutive victories. You get a point for each victory, and if you lose, your point total goes back to zero. Three points equals a title shot. Thus far, only one team has been able to accumulate those three precious points. This is unacceptable. We are not paper champions. We don't wear the belts or decoration. We are the hottest and best tag team of the last decade, and we intend on proving it. We contacted Chikara's director of fun, Leonard F. Jakarson. Hey, Matt, we know that guy. And he managed to pull some strings. You know those open contracts that Austin Aries and Roderick Strong have floating around? Well, through the Jakara front office, good old Leonard acquired one, one said contracts, little typo there from Chris Hero, and delivered it to Claudio and myself. Like I said before, it was quite simple, and it'll also be quite simple come September. Aries and Roddy are no match for Chris here and Claudio Casagnoli. The Kings of Wrestling are the Ring of Honor tag, are the next Ring of Honor tag team champions. September 16th, New York City, Kings Reign Supreme, signed CH. So, yeah, that, that's a promo ass. Like, uh, it, it's amazing because this show, you know, it's that we're covering tonight. It takes place August 25th. So over a week after he writes this promo, they don't acknowledge that Hero and Claudio have revealed themselves or that they're going to get a tag title shot. Like, Cause, it, because as I've said a million times, there are two continuities. There's the DVD continuity and then there's the Newswire slash live event continuity. They don't have to sell tickets to Glory by Honor on the DVD because the DVD comes out after glory by honor happens. Yeah. So they're not, they're not worried about it. So they just have all this last minute stuff. It's actually funny. That's another influence on AEW. I think Tony Khan, maybe he wasn't following the, uh, the, uh, ROH newswire and he just watched the DVD. So it's, to him, uh, everything just happened at the last minute, including Samoa Joe being announced as wrestling Kenta Kobashi happened on the week before. So Tony Khan, uh, according to the DVDs, I mean, so Tony Khan probably saw that and was like, ah, this is how you build a big match. <laughs> I'm joking. Well, I'm joking. But, but that is, I mean, it wouldn't, it's kind of like that would make sense. Cause if it is true though, if you, if you just watch the ROH DVDs, they did not know that Samoa Joe and Kenneko Bashi were going to wrestle until the week before the uh, the Joe vs. Kobashi match, even though, you know, in the real world, they announced it, you know, weeks, weeks, maybe months earlier. So it's just kind of funny to think about that. Matt, I'll have you know, there's vast differences between AEW and Ring of Honor. I think you're overstating it a little bit. Like, for example, recent ticket sales in the U.S. are at least three or four times more than 2006 Ring of Honor. But uh don't know why I was so snarky there. The joke was there. I had to take it. But, Matt, let's go. Let's go to – finally, I missed doing this with you, Matt. Honestly, I did our longest break in a long time. We are back. 
with, of all shows, Epic Encounter 2 took place August 25th, 2006 at the St. Paul Armory in St. Paul, Minnesota, in front of a reported crowd of 500 fans. <clears throat> a couple notes about this, Matt. This is the first Ring of Honor show in Minnesota in over two years. The last one was Ring of Honor Reborn, Stage 1, a very important show. And just like that show, Wade Keller's here, and he wrote a full show report. So after every match, Matt, now we're going to have the Matt F. Award. We're going to have Wade Keller as a... He didn't give us permission, um, but we don't really need it. But he's a pseudo guest because he will be also reviewing every match from the show through the past. Wait, yeah, Wade Keller through the past. Um, I will say, <laughs> I will say this about this crowd. This was—I don't know if it was the miking. Ew, this was a weird as hell sounding crowd. Like it was super, super quiet most of the time, and then occasionally when there was a pop, it would sound like insanely loud for about ten seconds, and then get really quiet again. Like. I'm sure the crowd was quiet, but the way it was, Mike, definitely was something unusual about it. Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing. It was it was weird. Like, I was wondering, like, yeah, it, did they just mic that was – this was like the opposite of bad miking. This sounded like – sometimes you can – sometimes you watch a wrestling show and you can kind of just tell that, like, the crowd live is louder than you're hearing. There's just a way – it's hard to explain. You can just kind of tell, like, oh, this show is being mic'd that. This was almost the opposite where I was watching at certain points. And like you said, like, when they pop for certain things, I was like, this crowd couldn't – it didn't sound like they were fake fake – noise but it was like the crowd couldn't have sounded this loud in the building because this is just insanely loud sounding and like you were saying they ring of honor i don't know if they've ever had a crowd like this where yeah they would be mostly quiet for during matches but whenever a spot happened that was like worthy of any kind of pop it would be like this huge explosion and then right back to quiet like it was really bizarre <laughs> it, yeah very it, strange. it's a different kind of crowd Different kind of um, crowd, different kind of uh, um, miking of the crowd, um, but uh, yeah, it made the show feel very weird. Um, the PW Torch talked to Gabe Zapolsky, and according to them, they wrote, Gabe Zapolsky tells PW Torch regarding the return to St. Paul after two and a half years, we were very happy with the return to St. Paul. The crowd was great and into everything. We definitely, we feel we definitely have something to build on there. Matt, I double-checked just to make sure. Ring of Honor runs one more show in St. Paul in April of 2007, and then they don't come back. So yep. apparently they didn't have much to build on. <laughs> I mean, 500 people, if that's a true crowd, that was like a pretty standard, decent crowd for Ring of Honor in but, this era. But, 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 tre but Trevor, when are those numbers ever true? Yeah, exactly. Um and then finally, there's a note here. There's a few, a couple more notes. Uh, we have a PW Torch Live report from Chris Vetter. He wrote, the crowd, much credit has to be given to NIW promoter Andrew Scalzi. Uh, I probably butchered your last name. Uh, no offense if I, if I, uh, didn't mean to. Uh, S-C-A-L-Z-E, who was handing out flyers in the spring at his shows, telling fans about this card. There were a lot of local indie workers in the crowd and virtually every regular indie fan I've come to know, know in the Twin Cities. Scalzi's work locally is the difference between this show's attendance being a success. And I guess that's something maybe we don't talk about much where there are like, you know, IWA Mid-South during its era would have put on these all-star cards and hardly anyone would show up. And I think sometimes people forget like on the indie grassroot level how important it is to have like good local promotion because when you think about it, you know – 
having a good street team, local promotion, if it's like a show like WWE, if you can draw like an extra 100 fans to a show that's drawing like 11,000 for a SmackDown taping or whatever, that's not going to make a, a, much of a difference at all. But for, a, for indie like Ring of Honor, like 400 – between the difference between 400 and 500 in 2006 is a drastic difference. So you just have one person that's really good about getting the word out who has connections, who is running another indie and can really pipe that, that can make a huge difference. I feel like the reason a lot of indies fail is because they don't have those connections. They don't go that extra mile, you know, to squeeze out that extra 50, that extra hundred people. If you can get, if you can get it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think even on big arena shows, it makes a difference. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm only in the market that I'm in, but you know, maybe that has something to do with AEW's ticket performance in that maybe, maybe they don't do enough good local promotion on some of these shows. I mean, I certainly walking around the city don't, wouldn't know that there was any big AEW show happening this week if it wasn't for the fact that I just know, you know? Yeah, I definitely saw someone on Twitter yesterday, like some people have been posting around a quote where um, Dave Meltzer going over the really scary low advanced ticket sales for re- upcoming uh, AEW shows. And one person I saw on Twitter posted like, oh, if I didn't see this quote floating around on Twitter, I wouldn't have even known like AEW is coming to my town in the next few weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, that goes right to your point. I mean um, – so and finally we got some Wade Keller notes before we get to the show proper. Wade Keller wrote – there's no doubt when driving past an armory on a Friday night that when you see the line outside the building, it's a wrestling crowd. At least to me, familiar with the demographics of the fans who attend. At last time, as last time ROH came to town two and a half years ago, despite reserved seats, 90 minutes before the show, there was a long line of fans outside the door. When the doors opened, most went to the merchandise table rather than their seats. ROH's selection of DVDs and an expanding selection of t-shirts and other merchandise make ROH events a mini wrestling fan a many wrestling fans convention. Everyone who attends an ROH event shares a certain bond of knowing a secret that the best contemporary wrestling action action anywhere in the country is in ROH. My ROH experience was once again really good. I really cannot recommend attending a live ROH show enough to those who are fortunate enough to live in an area where ROH goes. The crowd intensity, the hardworking nature of the wrestlers, and the organic feel of the shows is nothing like WWE. The wrestlers are every bit as good as top-level WWE wrestlers, but they're younger, more eager, and allowed to go out and have really good matches from top to bottom. Since ROH events are all on DVD, if you can't attend in person, purchase a DVD just to see if it's for you. It's also the type of show you can take a non-fan and afterward they still might not be a fan but they'll never question why you're a fan again um i think wade when he gets like really enthusiastic about things he's adorable (laughs) even if he's sometimes goofy i will say that line at the end about you if you bring a non-fan they'll never question why you're not a fan ever again i feel like i kind of had that mindset probably around this era and i feel like i had enough experiences where i was like no, they'll still question you, at least in my experience. They'll be like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the eras change, but I don't like, I, most of my friends are not wrestling fans, but I don't find that people think it's weird that I like it anymore. You know, like when I, you know, when I, in like, you know, nine, the nineties, even like when, even when it was popular in the two thousands, people thought it was weird. But now I think people have enough of an idea of what it is and why it's popular that. I don't find that anyone is like, well, that's like, why do you like that shit? You know, I, I, and occasionally I will genuinely get non-fan friends who occasionally will be like, Hey, um, can I come to a show with you? Like just not cause they want to watch wrestling like for good, but just cause they're curious about it and they find it amusing. 
and I've taken a couple of non-fan friends before, and they, they usually they, again, like like Wade said, they're not they don't become fans, but they're not like laughing at how ridiculous it is the whole time either. I do think that the mindset has changed. Yeah, I think it has between the time Wade wrote this and these years later. But I will say, I just it sent me memories of back to when I was like in my late teens, early twenties, around this time, and being like, I would try and tell people, you know. These days, I don't watch WWE. You know that, that you know that's over the top stuff. I watch this more realistic, you know, harder stuff like you know in Japan and ROH. And anytime I showed someone, they'd be like, "It's still people pretending to fight. Like it's still people that bounce into ropes and then bounce off. Like they have unstoppable momentum." Like you just you like, just you just read them back what uh, Herb Kunz wrote um, for his uh, wrestling tidbits, like the intro where he's like. You know, it is completely believable. The Japanese call it pro resu. It is the wrestling. It is the wrestling of which I am a fan. And and you say that, and then they totally get it. I haven't heard someone say it's the wrestling of which I am a fan probably since we were probably since twenty years ago. Oh man, I missed that, Matt. Matt, you give yourself the Matt F award. You just tickled me pink. Let's get um, let's get Herb on the show. <laughs> um, one thing that was refreshing about that Wade quote last thing is how many times on this show and I think by this time Dave had kind of outgrown it for the most part but how many times in the early years of ROH and through the years have we read quotes from Dave Wade be like this thing was this Ring of Honor thing was great but it would never work in WWE where Wade is going the opposite where he's like you know these guys are just as good as anyone in WWE you know and in fact they have less restrictions like this is the kind of thing that we were crying out for in like 2002 2003 and now we're actually getting it from somebody in 2006. Although, again, yeah. I think by this point, David mostly kind of the, – the, the indie stigma that he had kind of grown up around for a decade, like I think he had realized mm. Ring of Honor wrestlers are really good. You're There's a be, little bit of that. You're going you're to be disappointed in some reviews you read over the next couple of years then because oh, that, that has not gone away from Dave at this point. Well – we will open the show finally proper with Jimmy Jacobs and Lacey backstage. Jacobs says all the guys are talking about rumors of Lacey and Cole Cabana together in a car that was rocking. And baby, he just wants to know it isn't true. And uh, Lacey just tells him, as usual, to shut up. Don't be concerned with that. Don't be concerned with rumors. Start on the internet by pathetic loser men. She says if Jimmy wants to impress her, maybe he should beat someone like Homicide, who she just so happens to have signed Jimmy to face tonight. Lacey says tomorrow night, though, she won't care about titles. Tomorrow will be personal. And on that day, she wants Jimmy to take out BJ Whitmer and end his career. Jimmy says that he will. So I like you know, Jim, I like Jimmy Jacobs' Bruiser Brody shirt. Yeah, it's a nice little touch. Even though he's not doing the Huss thing anymore, you know, he's still wearing the Bruiser Brody shirt. Um and that brings us to the opening match. The Briscoe brothers, Jay and Mark, defeated Irish Airborne, Dave Christ and Jake Christ, in 10 minutes, 47 seconds, when uh, Jay made Dave Christ submit to the stretch plum. So the story of this match was, since the Irish Airborne eliminated the Briscoes from a recent Ultimate Endurance match in a big upset, the Briscoes apparently demanded this match. Um, the, we saw uh, not too many shows before that, the Briscoes take on Irish Airborne for the first time in ROH in a match that was decent, but pretty disappointing by uh Briscoe standards. Matt, what'd you think about this the rematch here? It was much simpler and I liked it better. Um it was just they just they just weren't as ambitious. They just had a tag team match and they did some of their cool moves and the Briscoes, you know, at, had a short domination period over the Crists. And I feel like there wasn't any sort of you know um, botches. The execution was good. 
and um, and I like that the Briscoes won in a completely unique way. I one thing I, I like, you know, in general is when wrestlers get over different finishes. You know, has um, has Jay Briscoe at this point won any matches with the Stretch Plum that you could think? Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, yeah, I don't recall him. Like, he doesn't even pull out. In a, he'll pull out occasionally in a match, but he's, it's not it's not even a move he does every match, let alone I can't recall him winning a match with a stretch plum. Yeah, and, and I thought that the the Chris, you know, the, the Irish everyone, all their finesse stuff and the uh, the arm drags and the, you know, leaping backwards off the ropes, I thought it all hit well. I'd say this was the best, to me, Irish airborne match that I'd seen maybe period in ROH at this point. Um, it's not like this was a great match or anything, but it was just like a good opener. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that, um, that, uh, Jake Chris's uh, shooting star press to the outside was not as good as Mark Briscoe's, but it was still nice that he did it against the Briscoe's. I thought that was cool. Um, but just in general, I thought that everyone looked good. I thought the finish was cool. I thought the structure was good and simple. And I thought this was a, just a good match. Yeah, it's funny. I thought the uh, the last Briscoe's Irish Airborne match was the match where the Irish Air. I have no inside knowledge, but I had this hunch that the last Irish Airborne Briscoe's match was the match that kind of ended the mini push they were getting because it feels like after that, it just <laughs> they didn't really have any more momentum. Well, they did. They and did. Like, they did. They did get to eliminate the Briscoes in that uh, in that Ultimate yeah. Endurance match after that. But this match kind of confirms to me because it feels like this match is like telling you, hey, if you thought the Irish Airborne were like going places, like no, that that, that match, that that elimination was a complete fluke because I thought the Briscoes dominated this match for the most part. It wasn't a squash, but I thought they were pretty dominant. Even late when Jake Chris gets the hot tag, it's a two-move hot tag. Now, granted – those two moves are really cool. It's a it's a flying double missile dropkick where he has like one leg to on each Briscoe, which I guess in, in AEW parlance that would be a double Kang- flying kangaroo, kangaroo kick. kick. Yeah, yeah, and then he does like you mentioned the the it was as you said it was nice of him to do the shoot it was nice of him to do the shooting star press to the floor. I mean the Irish Airborne this match they didn't even get to do their Irish Air Raid finisher like they did in their previous match, and yeah, how many times do you even see the like Jay Briscoe win a match get to beat anyone with the stretch plum? So I feel like this match was kind of like letting you know that was a fluke. Um, but like you, I do think the shorter runtime worked for this match. I think the pace seemed a bit snappier than the first match as a result. It's a lot of the 2006 kind of classic Briscoe style of just unrelentingly running through their offense, seeing like this brutal machine of a team, in my opinion. Like these two teams' previous match, though, I do kind of feel like – I said this on the last one. I feel like the Briscoes – project so much physicality during this era that like it almost makes the Irish airborne look weaker by comparison. Like the Briscoes in these matches feel like total ass kickers and the Irish airborne feel like a competent mid-aughts flippy do indie tag team. But, 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 I, but, but like that doesn't bother me, you know, like I just like fine. Okay. Yeah. Who cares if they look, don't look yeah. like, you know, like comparable. That's what they, I would say that's what they were. <laughs> they yeah, were yeah. a competent mid-aughts flippy do indie tag team. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I would give this match a low good. I think uh, I think this was a slight bit more. I was a little bit more enjoyable than their last match, and I especially liked also near the end um, the ending. I loved where Jay did a really impressive 
delay on his gorilla press into a death alley driver like he let he held the guy up for extra little bit and then mark immediately falls out with a foot stomp then he immediately goes into a big dive on the floor and then jay immediately puts the guy in the stretch pot. it was just a really one of those really fun bam 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 with the unexpected finish kind of sequences that's really an emphatic win for one team that just again i think made the briscoes look like a million bucks and like just killers and yeah, so absolutely. And and again, like we were, I was going to point this out at this point, looking at my notes, but we already pointed out how weird this crowd is where, um, you know, completely silent. And then when a cool spot happens, they explode for a moment like it's like they've never seen live wrestling before. So, oh, we should also mention Dave Christ still wrestling with he wrestled this match with a dang cast on his whole right hand, you know, still had a, an injured hand. So, you know, always impressive when a guy finds a way to wrestle even with a broken hand you know take notes brian danielson you wuss (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, so um finally we'll go to wade keller had his own thoughts his first review of the night he wrote a very good opening match which prompted roh's proud owner carrie silken to call me over to tell where else in the country you're going to see that action in an opener three stars so i like the idea that carrie sulkin was so excited he was like wait did you just see that did you see that wade i like to imagine he was doing that the whole show and somebody replied la pwg um iwa mid-south uh maybe chikara uh sometimes sometimes czw no anyway no i'm not i'm not taking anything away i mean this was in this era you know this stuff was you know pretty awesome so um, after the match, Jay Briscoe grabs the mic. Jay starts by saying that Irish Airborne didn't stand a chance. Their win over the Briscoes at the Ultimate Endurance was the luckiest of their career, and they're happy to make examples of their punk asses. Jay moves on, says he doesn't care if it's Samoa Joe, Homicide, Kenta, Davey Richards, any one of you pussies. If you want to throw down with a couple country boys, the Briscoes will be, you know, will gladly oblige. And then Mark tells us to man up. So. Again, you know, Jay basically name checking everyone they've been involved with or are about to be involved with. This is the this uh, is the second B show, I think, where you get a lot of like just the Briscoes cutting promos to like with, with as like a mission statement and then coming out and like attacking their enemies. Because I feel like that happened on another recent like B show, maybe the one in Detroit or Chicago back in June. I don't I don't totally remember which one. Yeah, and we're obviously we will get more Briscoes later. Multiple, I think, uh, sequences of the Briscoes causing Briscoe action to spontaneously happen. Um, we go to Matt Seidel backstage for something that is going to be even more awkward than my transition there. Um, Matt Seidel says, two years ago, this building was the place where he and Delirious had their do-or-die match, which got them spots on the ROH roster. Seidel says, since then, he just got back from Japan, Canada, and England, where he says he's been, quote, drinking protein shakes and changing the world. Um, Seidel says, when he first wrestled Delirious, that man was borderline schizophrenic, but now he says delirious is the official full-blown bizarre maniac of ring of honor that's supposed to be like that's supposed to be like in contrast to being schizophrenic (laughs) you went from being schizophrenic to a full-blown bizarre maniac Seidel says he's ready for everything and ready for delirious tonight matt Seidel does and delirious dies i just wrote in my notes matt Holy fuck, Matt Seidel was bad at promos. He was trying, but his delivery was just so corny and forced and kind of annoying. Like, he's trying really hard. This isn't one of those guys that has, like, a flat affect that's kind of like the deer in the headlights. He's really trying. Well, well, Trevor, I think one thing I've learned about myself as we did this podcast is I love awkward, odd, over-the-top promos. And 
whether it's Ace Steel doing them, you know, or Matt Seidel doing them, I found this so charming. Like, yes, this was really bad, but I just found it so funny and entertaining. Like that big smile on his face as he was doing it, his voice saying drinking protein shakes and changing the world, which totally reminded me of the time Hulk Hogan on Nitro said he was backstage eating fruit and being cool. Um, <laughs> and just, I, I, Love this, Trevor. Like, it was so bad, and I loved it. And I just, I love odd, unique promos that, because, you know, WWE just at this point was not letting people do promos if they weren't, like, scripted or or good at them, you know? So they, you just didn't get strange nonsense like this. This felt like the sort of promo you'd get on, like, some random territory TV show in a studio in 1983. And, you know, by, by the 2000s, you weren't getting that on TV. And I, I like that you could get it at an ROH DVD. You know, Matt Seidel, say what you want about him. This was, you know, again, not a good promo, but, like, you got a sense of his personality here. And I do think this was, uh, you know, a, exemplary of his actual personality. And, yeah, I uh, I like this bad promo, Trevor. Yeah, and well, and I will I will say there are two types of bad promos. Like I said before, there's the deer in the headlights kind of frozen, very flat, like you're scared, kind of. Um, yeah, I'm gonna take you on, blah, blah, you know. And then there's this, and to me, I much prefer this. Like if you're not great at a promo, if it's if go big, you know, yeah. really go for it. And and you can't say that Matt Seidel was not going for it. Like the recap, you might go didn't sound like that bad of a promo. Just his awkward verbiage and his enthusiasm, the way he comes off—it's one of those things you really kind of have to see. Yeah, like it, it's more awkward in watching than in my recap. Even <laughs> though you might get a bit of the flavor with the drinking protein shakes and changing the world. This is only a minute or two, right? But I still think it's the longest solo promo Matt Seidel had ever gotten in ROH at this point. And also, again, Ring of Honor, like. Guys aren't going to get better if you don't let them have chances to cut promos, you know, yep. and they give them a chance. So that brings us to Homicide defeating Jimmy Jacobs via pinfall in 11 minutes, 56 seconds after he hits a lariat. So before the match even starts, we have to talk about between Jimmy's entrance and before Homicide's entrance starts, the power in the it cuts out to the uh, – the lights that Ring of Honor brings to every show to light up the uh, the ring. So normally Ring of Honor for years now, what they had been doing was they turn off the house lights so the building's mostly dark, and then they bring their own lighting rig they purchased. And so it's just lighting the ringside and ring area. So the lights completely shut out. Jimmy proceeds to cut a promo in the dark saying the problem isn't with the power. It's with the dorks here calling them so 2003. The crowd chants shut the fuck up. And obviously at this point, Jimmy is clearly just desperately trying to stall for time as they fix the issue. And so he starts to sing the ballad of Lacey in the ring, which draws booze. And then finally, it doesn't take too long. They turn the house lights on. They start to warm up and the, the house lights start to light up the uh, the building. And then they're able to fix the lighting ring, the lighting rigs, like the Ring of Honor lighting rigs late in the match no i think no, no, it's I think somewhere in the middle of the yeah, next yeah, match. it comes back during the claudio daniels match yeah so either way we hit homicides music we get to the match and uh this was the equivalent of the lights going out because let me just say this man I, i'll be interested there's a couple of matches i'm really interesting to see interested to see how our opinions compare or contrast this is one of them because let me just say this man We've seen worse matches than this on through the years. We've seen really short matches, student matches, matches that just completely fell apart or that a crowd absolutely turned on, you know, like the Jeff Hardy match, all that kind of stuff. I can't remember the last time on this podcast we've seen, at least in my opinion, a match between two people this talented that got this much time 
that was this poor. Um, I, 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 can, listen- I can think of one off the top of my head, but I will save it for when I say like, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know, my review range where I, I don't, I sometimes I'll say star rings, but I'll usually do, you know, average, above average, good, very good, great. And then like a super lot of just crazy word I'll think up on the swap signs even above that. And I barely, very rarely on this show say below average or bad because Ring of Honor is just a company built around good wrestling. And that's, that's the meal ticket for the company. And so there's usually a very high floor, a very high kind of like core competency among the roster. I'm going to give this the very rare Trevor Dame on through the years below average rank, not by a ton, but I would consider this a below average wrestling match. At first, it starts with homicide. Pretty much he immediately takes Jacobs to the outside. He beats the crap out of him. And it's a standard like, lively opening to a homicide match. He does the thing where, you know, he throws Jimmy on the timekeeper's table. He throws him into the barricade. He chucks chairs and things into the ring. It's it's like a classic regular ass homicide opening to a match. And it did make for kind of a funny moment where like homicide throws all that stuff in the ring. And he does this sometimes where like he then doesn't use all that stuff. So like he throws in the ring and then he just he goes in the ring and he's like politely just hands the ring bell to the ref to dispose of it. Like, okay, I threw this in the ring. Can, can you get rid of this for me? And the match, again, I felt like, oh, we're getting off. I like both these guys. We're getting off to a decently hot start. And then it never gets going. Like, once this match gets in the ring and really starts, it never gets any momentum. There's this really odd, hitchy vibe to it where Jimmy's often selling a little longer than he needs to or he isn't quite in the right position. The match doesn't lose flow. It never gets into flow, like, at all to begin with at times like when jimmy starts working over homicide's arm at one point this match slows into such a crawl you can literally hear one fan shout boring a couple times which will be not the last time that happens on this show um even when the match hits some bigger moves in the final minute or two it just feels off to me like it doesn't feel like the, the finish where Matt, where um, side, homicide hits the lariat it doesn't feel like it builds to a crescendo crescendo as much as it's homicide just going Let's cut our losses. Let's, let's get, let's finish this. And I have no idea why this went so wrong. I, I like both these guys quite a bit. It could be as simple as a lack of chemistry, but it, it felt weirder to me than that. Like I noticed Jimmy was favoring his leg often during this match, starting when he got thrown onto the table early on and homicide never worked on the leg. So maybe that was a legit injury. I was going to even say maybe the lighting problems threw them off, except I can't imagine that because the house, house lights were on for this whole match. So in, in that sense, it was actually better lit than the average Ring of Honor um, match of this era. So at the end of the day, it was just a very weirdly disjointed, meandering, boring match. The only two highlights I found were Homicide Sing. At one point, you know, Homicide's beating up Jimmy Jimmy Jacobs, and he goes, sing for me, Jimmy. And then he goes, oh, Homicide! <laughs> homicide Sing, which I thought was very adorable. And then there was one cool Jimmy Jacobs senton, where normally when someone does a top rope move, they, like, you see them, they'll climb to the top turnbuckle, and they'll kind of steal themselves for at least a few seconds, sometimes many seconds, and really prepare themselves. Jimmy Jacobs doesn't do that here. Like he and Homicide are fighting on the top turnbuckle. He, you know, pushes uh, Homicide off, and the second Homicide's um like back lands on the mat, Jimmy's jumping off and coming down with his senton, and it looked really cool and almost in a reckless way. I really dug that, but overall, I really did not like this match. There's just very awkward, disjointed, never got going. Blah. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't think you're wrong. I don't think it's as unusual as you seem to think it is in ROH at this era to have matches like this. So this match didn't stand out to me as being particularly bad. Like, I could think of a bunch of matches that were just, like, meander. I mean, like, I remember that Joe versus Claudio match from Cleveland, I think it was, back in uh, in April of 2006, I think it was, like, similar. Like, where you just had two great wrestlers that just had, like, this kind of, like, whatever kind of match. Uh, at least for this one, I, I like just the vibe of, you know, like the, the just the, the wackiness at the beginning um, with, with Homicide chasing him around. I like Jimmy hitting his, you know, his crazy like torpedo headbutt. I like the Homicide singing. He says, Homicide Punch is a crazy motherfucker punch. Um, you know, Homicide's back rake, which back rake, back raking has become a uh, a hot thing on uh, TV wrestling in the past uh, couple years um and I also enjoy uh I also enjoy watching stuff with the house lights on I I I just that's a look that I like maybe I maybe I wouldn't like it if it wasn't as rare but I don't know I don't I don't mind the look um the one thing I I will say there's a couple matches on this show where the wrestler just like pushes the referee Homicide shoved the ref out of the way at one point when um when Homicide when he was going up to Lacey on the apron and it's just like what is the point of rules like that wrestlers can just push the referee aside um it's a pet peeve of mine the other thing is I think I know why uh the homicide angle after uh Death for Dishonor didn't get over the way it should have they don't follow up at all you know like on on the next couple shows Homicide is Doing stuff with Adam Pierce and Steve Carino, but Cornette's not there. No one's really it, cutting. Doesn't for- Cornette return on the next show? Um, he might return on the next show, but like that's that's a long time. Yeah, like, like that's that's there, there's no follow up. Like it, it takes a long time for Cornette to come back. They're not like the, you know this this certainly homicide does not feel like a main eventer on this show. He wasn't even on the two UK shows. Like they they, they don't they don't keep any momentum. So it just feels like he's adrift in the mid-card when they're building him up for this giant title match. I know they get back to him being in the main events and stuff, and they, you know, they put him in a few with the Briscoes, and he teams with Joe at uh, Glory by Honor. I'm not saying like they, they just give up on him, but I think that there was too much of a gap between the big angle and actually pushing Homicide. The thing that the fans need to be more excited for when it comes to Homicide is not like the Cornette feud. It's the idea that, oh, he's going to be the world champ. Because when Homicide comes out, they're chanting next world champ for him, which actually led to a really cute moment where Jimmy bows to the crowd like he thinks it's for him. I thought that was a cute little moment. Um, So, yeah, uh, Wade Keller's review of this. Wade wrote, during ring intros, the lights went out. Kerry ran from his seat at ringside to the back to tend to the technical glitch. They turned on the house lights rather than the ROH spotlights, but those were slow to warm up. To kill time, Jacobs began singing his ode to Lacey. It was a special and welcome bonus to hear the ode live and in person. Two and a quarter stars. Um, I also like that after the match, Lacey's guy gay into a fans and, and she tells one fan, I could have beat Homicide, which I thought was funny. Um, after the match, uh, the Briscoes run in the ring. They attack Homicide. Homicide fights back for a second, but quickly he gets laid out with a Spike J driller. So that's the first time we'll see the Briscoes do a run-in, not the last. And that brings us to Christopher Daniels taking on Claudio Casanelli. And Christopher Daniels defeats Claudio via pinfall in 12 minutes, 33 seconds, using a cradle. Matt, this may be a match we've forgotten because I think when the uh, 
obviously this is playing off of the big angle at the hundredth show where um christopher daniels was doing a whole thing where i'm finally ready to shake hands with people which is i've never done in ring of honor and he decides to do, uh, make the first person he gives the honor to claudio he's like you're the future of ring of honor and then that same night claudio turns on ring of honor betrays them joins czw and you know uh, Daniels cuts a promo or two after that on different shows being pissed off. And we talked about, oh, but they never really follow up on this. And I think we even said like, oh, do they ever do a match? And I think we thought they don't. They do. It's a, it's a random third from the bomber match on a B show in Minnesota, <laughs> but they do apparently, I, I forgot this match happened. So I'll, I'll give that much credit to them. They do follow it up like many shows later. Yeah. What'd you think about this epic conclusion kind of to that battle? Yeah, like again, like this is what I'm talking about when I say well, what happened in Dan when uh in um Homicide versus Jacobs is not so rare because I feel like this is not so different than what you're talking about. Like it just felt it felt not that intense and kind of meandering. Like there was a long chin lock in the middle. I thought that the finish is stupid, you know, again, with with Claudio grabbing the uh the briefcase, the ref trying to take it, Claudio's just shoving him away. Like, I, I, you know, and then, and then, the, and then the roll up. I, I don't know. There just there wasn't the intensity that you'd want if these two people really don't like each other. I don't. I, I'm surprised by how many Claudio matches during this era I have not enjoyed. Um, like I knew that I wasn't super into uh, Daniels in this era, but I, I, I didn't realize that Claudio had just had so many kind of aimless mid card matches. You know, again, these guys are pros. Everything was professionally done, but the match just felt like a, like you said, a third from the top mid card match on a B show, and they didn't really, they didn't really uh, try to aspire above that, and it kind of dis- disappointed me. You know, a lot of Claudio's control segment is just him like kind of walking around arguing with the, with the crowd because they're yelling, hey! And the chin lock, first of all, we'll get to chin locks later and how you could get them over, but this did not get the chin lock over. It just... Claudio has a chin lock on for so long that they actually do a spot where Daniel's arm drops twice, and it's like, are you really wasting that moment on a chin lock when no one ever wins with a chin lock. Like, isn't that weird? Like, to do a chin lock that's two full minutes where you're having the guy's arm drop? Twi- like, I don't know. that Something was strange to me about that. It just, it was indicative of how they decided to work this match and the intensity level of it. So, I found this match pretty lame. Um, I, I don't think it was even really much better than the match before. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, this feud doesn't really click until they start doing the tag matches with the Kings of Wrestling. But, um, yeah, I wasn't into this. See, I did like this match better but than the one before, but I didn't, still didn't like this match that much. Um, I agree mostly with you. Like, this felt like a match Daniels has probably worked a thousand times in, like, a, a thousand random indies and house shows in his career. It's probably a match he could do while making his grocery list in his head for that week. Like just, you know, the match where you could be like half mentally there. He gives Claudio most of the match. Just the old cells lets Claudio control the match. He makes an attempted comeback here or there. He hits a move here or there, and then he gets a bit more of a comeback at the end. And then they go to the finish and it feels kind of very, it feels actually a fair bit, like a random like 90s or even late 80s 
TV wrestling match, which Ring of Honor matches usually don't feel like, even like you, like, like you mentioned, the late match chin lock that goes on for a long time. Um, just how kind of basic and perfunctory it is. Even the fact that the finish is Claudio grabbing his suitcase, trying to hit Daniels with it in full view of the ref, and then Daniels just like ducking it or avoiding it and getting a quick cradle while Claudio's still holding the suitcase. Like it felt very, like something you would have seen on like a 93, 94 raw or something, you know? Um, there, but I, I, that said, I don't think there's anything wrong with this match. Like it moves at a solid mid tempo pace. It has that very rock solid basic match structure, but there's also nothing about it that's really memorable apart from maybe there is one spot I really liked, which is Claudio. I don't know why more guys don't do this. I think this was a great spot. Claudio goes and picks up, uh, Daniels for a del- the big delayed vertical suplex where a lot of times he'll let them count 20, 30. He lets them count to three and then he drops it down. And, and he tells them to go fuck themselves. I think that's like I think more power wrestlers should do stuff like that. That's like, a very, it's a very Brian Daniels in two thousand and six kind of spot. Yeah, I, I thought it worked. I thought this was like a strong average, so like one level above the last match. But in some ways, it, it, it's weird because it's a match. Like it's one of those matches. I don't feel like they aimed to do anything more in this. Like there are matches where they're not good because their ambitions were high, but they just failed at execution. I feel like they weren't trying to have a match better than this, which again, I feel like Daniels were getting more and more of those, of these kind of performances from him at this point. But I'm telling you, but I'm telling you, it's weird how many Claudio performances like that there are during this era too. Yeah. I remember really not liking Claudio in ROH and and like him more like in Jakar and other indies and PWG. And then when I watched we, we when we started to rewatch him, I thought, no, he's way better than I thought. And I think I've mentioned this before. It feels like when he turned heel, it was like you flicked a switch and he stopped being good in the ring. Like it's not that he's bad, but yeah, we get on matches he like this. He stopped putting on these like top tier performances. Yeah. And I'm hoping that now that he's about to be put with Hero as a tag team, I'm hoping that changes things now. We'll 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 see. Um, I think, I think, I think, you know, not overnight, but I think it does change things. I do also, I did also love the tantrum Claudio threw after the match where he swings his briefcase at the ref and then he just keeps swinging it around in a circle until he falls over and then he hugs his briefcase. Like, I think Claudio was good at having some hammy in the right way kind of heel reactions at this point. He was getting a bit better at that. Um, Wade Keller's review said, uh, Claudio's ring entrance is hilarious. He squints his eyes in a way that just cracked me up. He, was all- <laughs> <laughs> he, he also was indecisive about which way to turn, left or right, once he got to the ring and changed course a few times. And one of those had to be there, moments of comedy. Daniels carried himself like a star. And really, who has been a more consistent star of the indie scene over the past decade than Daniels? This was his first match in Minnesota ever. Good match, Whoa, but not a that, that's that's crazy trivia. Yeah, because for a guy that was such a road warrior and like all yeah. over the place, yeah, good match, but not a standout match. It fits place on the card, two and a quarter stars. And you'd think someone with a who's a road warrior would definitely wrestle in Minnesota because they're from Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is funny though. Like it's weird. Like Daniel's place in wrestling is so weird to me because. Like, I think you and I and everyone recognizes that, like, he was a very important indie wrestler from the late 90s all throughout the last 20 years. And he's kind of like one of the most smoothest, like, surest, safest veteran hands you could have. But at the same time, I don't get jazzed about him and I don't view him 
the way I view like the legends I would view of Samoa Joe, Danielson, Punk, because he just has so many matches like this, which are they're good workman like matches, but they're not the kind of matches where like if you did the proverbial, would you want to sit down and watch like every match this wrestler ever had on desert Island. I think with Daniels, I'd have so many matches like this. I'd be like, I might say like, no, I, I kind of don't want to do that. You know? Well, well, I remember, you know, this era of Daniels is what, you know, stuck in my memory before we started doing the podcast. And yeah, I agree with you. But then when we started reviewing the early era of ROH before he left, you know, in the whole scandal, uh, situation with, with, between ROH and TNA, um, I do remember liking him a lot more in that era. I, he was better. And this era, he, I, I, it's just, and, and his TNA work during this era was better, much like with AJ Styles, too. I do think a lot of it is just, I'm just going to be a pro, but I'm not going to put my best stuff in ROH when I need to save my body for these TV shows and pay per views. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, a lot of it. Um, you know, Joe does it to an extent, too, but Joe manages to still be usually very exciting even in his lesser ROH performances, just, you know, as he's just such a dynamic performer. Daniels is mostly smooth and not so much dynamic, but we have seen enough examples where he could turn it on and put on something really exciting. He just tends not to in ROH during this time period. Agree. Like he is capable of greatness. We've seen that in TNA. We saw in the first year of Ring of Honor, he was one of the most important people there. He was the glue in some matches. Great matches, um, great promos. I mean, go back and listen to the early episodes of Through the Years. You'll hear it. And again, I'll say, like, if someone said, Trevor, we're going to time travel you to the 2006 ROH roster, and your life depends on you, an untrained person who's never had a match in their life, having a decent performance in the ring against someone, and it could be anyone on this roster. Daniels is either my one or two, other than um, yeah, Brian I mean, Danielson. I, mean, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pick anyone before Danielson, but yeah, Dan, but Daniels would be pretty high on the list. Yeah. Because even though he wouldn't be my second favorite wrestler on this roster, I just have a feeling from the way he works, from his reputation, from just his skill set. Like, if you're ever going to have a shot of anyone on this roster, he's going to he's going to get you through to something. You know, he'll find a way. But well, he he was wasn't he the guy that um, Stephen Amell worked with at All In? Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think that's a coincidence that they picked him of all the guys because, again, I think he's just a really safe pair of hands. And and I will also say, like, if we're doing an Indie Wrestling Hall of Fame, absolutely Christopher Daniels should be in any, like, Indie Wrestling Hall of Fame. But um, next we go outside where Delirious cuts a promo on Matt Seidel in Delirious speak. We make out a few English words here or there, like, including him saying, we come a long, long way. And it ends with him saying, Cobra Stretch, Matt Seidel, tap. Tappy, 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 tappy. And if you're asking Trevor, did you go back and watch this clip three or four times to count the exact right number of tappies to say you would be correct? <laughs> uh, I, I didn't like this as much as the Matt Seidel promo, but it was probably act- <laughs> but it was probably actually a better promo. And yeah. I, I don't, I, um, I don't, re- I didn't remember um, Delirious having so much comprehensible material in his promos at this point but you know it was you could mostly understand what he was talking about through the gibberish yeah i mean basically he was kind of kind of same promo matt seidel did except without mentioning protein drinks and changing the world but like but you could tell that was what what the gibberish was the protein drink (laughs) talking a lot about that soylent he's a big fan of that um Hulk Cabana and Davey Richards next up, they defeat the Embassy, 
of Jimmy Rave and Sal Renaro in 14 minutes, 51 seconds when Cabana made Renaro tap out to the Billy Goats curse, that kind of inverted Boston crab. So this was a match I mentioned a few shows ago, I believe. And I, I went back and re-listened to the clip of Jimmy Rave's interview on the Honorable Mention podcast, which I often reference because it was a really good look back in a way we don't get from many Ring of Honor wrestlers at this era of Ring of Honor. And Jimmy Rave remembers this specific match as being a match where Cole Cabana and Davey Richards almost got into a fight before the match laying it out backstage. Rave actually wow, – I went back spe- and listened wow, to now that Now that would make this relevant to modern times. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, how? I can't even think of something. A fight backstage? You know, Colt Cabana's <laughs> name being involved somehow? I don't, uh, I don't know. But um, Rave says that he, Sal, and Colt were l- trying to lay out the match before the show. And then Davey just comes up and is like, yeah, we should just all go out there and hit all our signature stuff. Like kind of just kind of dismissively just like saying, this is what we should do. You know, just do our stuff. And Colt apparently told Davey to shut the fuck up. And, <laughs> and again, Rave was like, yeah, I remember they almost got into a fight. And then he also, they also seem to remember that Davey was kind of hesitant at first about the idea of all oh, playing up the comedy. But to his credit, when you watch the match, he does seem game to kind of be more lighthearted and play up the comedy. But. It was funny, like Jimmy was kind of talking about this as kind of a larger thing with Davey, where Davey, um, kind of sometimes was kind of just very headstrong about wanting to do certain things and go all out and all in everything, like right from the start and not have like a lot of nuance or subtlety. And I thought there was one interesting anecdote he talked about right after he talked about this, where he mentioned a match we've already covered on through the years, which was a four way on a recent show with it was Jimmy Rave, Davey Richards, Samoa Joe, and Delirious. And Jimmy remember telling like Davey after the match, trying to give him some advice, where it was like, if you look at our entrances, everyone except you had like a crowd interaction and a crowd connection. Like he was like, Joe comes out and he's interacting with everyone in the front row, and you know the fans feel like they could go out and have a beer with Joe after the show. You know, I come out and the fans are just having a great time, like throwing the toilet paper and really yelling at me. And Delirious comes out, he runs around the ring and sticks stuff in his mouth, and everyone just loves, you know, playing along with Delirious. And he says, "You came out and you just went to the ring. You didn't associate with the fans. You just went in the ring and waited for the match to start." And he was like, "You need to have that that crowd connection, that bond." And you're you're treating this like a, a an MMA fight where your job is just to walk to the ring and do their performance and then leave. Like you're not you're not making that connection. And I thought that was like an interesting example of the way like veterans sometimes are trying to point things out to um to uh newbies and. Anyway, do, we do, get to do, the match. Do, 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 wait, do you agree with that, though? Do you agree that's necessary? Like, could it be possible that because all those other guys were connected with the crowd, having the one guy be just like, no nonsense, I'm not, I'm just here to wrestle, could work? Because I, I didn't, I felt like Davey was pretty over with the, with the crowds during this period. I think there are wrestlers where the work can speak for themselves. I would say when you're just starting out, I might want to try a little bit harder to make the connection. Like, I mean, let's use an example. Kenta Kobashi didn't need to have a fun gimmick or glad hand with the fans before his match with Samoa Joe because he was a goddamn legend. Yes. And he was – so – but like if you're a new guy, I can see the idea of like if you're just trying to stick – I mean Davey Richards had a perfectly good Ring of Honor career. You know, He became world champion. He was over. But I can kind of see D- Jimmy Ray from the perspective of a guy like Davey's just coming in. I'm being paired with him for this first feud to try and help him out. Like the idea of – Maybe just try and connect a bit more with the fans. I I, I can see his side, even though I, I, I would I would also say though I wouldn't suggest that Davy Richards be a Colt Cabana comedy wrestler or a goofball ass showing heel like you know like those paths would have worked for him. Could he have been a bit maybe more like a Samoa Joe was? 
you know, where he shows some charisma and still have that ass kicking side, you know, maybe that would have been more his target. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think it's generally good advice, but I do think sometimes there are exceptions. And I do think that Davey was pretty over for a newcomer at this time. Like, I mean, uh, the crowds took to him pretty well at the beginning. I will say this is a match where I think you do see that Ray philosophy really the advantages of that because this is a match where we get a flurry of action in the final minutes but i until we get that flurry i kind of can't believe this was 15 minutes like this match to me was like the equivalent of popcorn where you look at a bowl of popcorn and it looks like a lot of food but when you actually like weigh it there actually isn't much substance to it like you get some early cold toilet paper comedy where he's throwing toilet paper guys that burns a minute or two of the match you get a long Davy richards face in peril sequence where you get a lot of the usual embassy minimalist i call it offense where they're doing very basic stuff to not get like steel focus it's you know sometimes they're just doing stuff like stomps like really basic offense but it's a match that can get away with all that basic stuff because it's People like throwing toilet paper at Jimmy Rave. They like booing him. They like Colt Cabana's comedy. And then, to maybe to your point, though, they really go nuts for Davey Richards' kicks. Like, this is one of those things where he doesn't get to do a lot of his offense in this match. Maybe that's one of the things they were arguing about before the match. He doesn't go, like, buck wild here. But when he does throw those kicks, this is one of those times in the show where this Minnesota crowd reacts like they've never seen a guy throw hard kicks before. And again, maybe they, maybe they hadn't. And, and they, like, they lose their friggin' minds. They'll be quiet. He'll throw a hard kick. They'll go, holy shit, you know, we just saw a guy throw a hard kick. And in a way, this match is a similar match to the last one where it is technically solid, falls a very basic formula you've seen a ton of, and it feels like what it is, which is a mid-card match on a B-show. But yet I enjoyed this more than the last match. I would give this like an above average in part because I feel what these guys bring to the table have more natural personality and variety than what Daniels and Claudio did. Like you get a little bit of comedy from Colt, you get the growly hard kickery from Davey, you get a bit of the old school healing of Rave, you get like a nice little sampler of personalities here and there's a bit more simple enjoyment in these guys just being their standard characters versus a Christopher Daniels who definitely has some charisma but his character doesn't really do a lot of heavy lifting in his matches you know he's his 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 appeal is mostly just his work where here you can enjoy a cult natural rave match that where they don't do a ton but the fun is mostly just Jimmy Rave being Jimmy Rave, Colt Cabana being Colt Cabana. So decent little mid-card match, I would say. Yeah, I'd say I think you and I are exactly on the same page on this one. I, um, you know, I think, you know, the crowd reactions, I think, hurt it, this one a bit. You know, they're so muted that even the Jimmy Likes Balls chant was weak, um, which, you yeah. know, that, that usually gets the crowd going for, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, and I think, I think the, the Rave and Renaro act, while they, you know, I think they did a good job here, I think it definitely misses something without Prince Nana and without Daisy Hayes. I think when the whole entourage is there, there's a lot more fun to be had. Um, but that pairing, you know, but, um, you know, I think, you know, they, they did, they did start fun. You know, even with the, with the whole toilet paper throwing hijinks at the beginning, even Davey got involved. Like after Jimmy was, uh, selling, being mad that a fan hit him in the back with the roll, Davey snuck up on the apron and then hit him with a roll of his own. They got a lot of mileage out of that. So I, I could say that, um, you know, I, I don't think Davey shied away from it too badly. It was also funny to hear, um, 
Davey called one of the hottest newcomers in ROH because, like, yeah, he'd only been there for about a little less than three months at this point. But in our timeline, we felt like we've been, like, reviewing his matches forever at this point. Yeah. So it's just, just funny, like, how slow we go um, compared to how fast the shows are. Um, um, but, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, like you said, this was just a uh, – it was a mid-card match on a B-show. Um, but because the personalities are more dynamic – and because Davey Richards' offense is more dynamic, and even some of Jimmy Rave's offense is pretty dynamic, the match felt a lot more dynamic than the previous match, even though the other match was probably technically just as good. Um, but yeah, it was, it just, it was a, it was a perfectly fine wrestling match without much heat that felt very slight and felt very low stakes. Um, and I missed Prince Nana and Daisy Hayes. And I do want to add that I would probably undersell the quality of the action a little bit. Like there was some good, decent action here. Like I particularly like Sauronaro. He hit this great drop kick right to Davy's head, and then he did a big dive over the top rope to Davy on the floor, which caught Davy really high and looked like it probably absolutely sucked to catch. So there was some fun bits of action. I agree with you too. We missed the uh, the Nana. Um, and Daisy Hayes, in fact, but normally when the guys aren't brought to the uh, like Midwest, they just don't acknowledge it or they acknowledge it very minorly. Prezak actually makes a point during this match to go, we don't know why Prince Nana or Daisy Hayes aren't here tonight and we'll have to look into it, which I think is we're kind of foreshadowing that Prince Nana is not long for the uh, Ring of Honor world at this point. He's going to be gone pretty soon. So um, the other thing I want to point out, there was at one point one fan did just kept – screaming you suck in a like a blood curdling scream i'm not even going to attempt to replicate a jimmy before the match just frightening if you watch the show take note of that um and uh, okay i before i go to the wade's review matt i got a really important question that came to my mind i i might have asked this before i don't think i have this is a question it can't wait it has to be asked matt so a lot of toilet paper got thrown in the ring if someone offered, you know, the students collect the toilet paper afterwards. If someone said, hey, Matt, you could have like an entire garbage bag full of these toilet paper rolls for your home use. Would you use toilet paper that was thrown in a wrestling ring? This is a very important question. Like, would I use toilet paper that had already been thrown in the wrestling ring? Yeah, like, like it looks clean. You don't know where it's been. It did touch the ring. Would you use that on your holiest of holies? No pun intended. You know, it's free toilet paper. I mean, it listen, doesn't listen. look like it's been used. I mean, Trevor, as you know, I'm a pretty big germaphobe. But yes, I would just like you know roll you know to roll like you know throw out the top couple layers. That's it, and then I'd use it. I was thinking I would, except what if it landed on its side? Then you can't really do it. Everything's been contaminated at that point. So I'm not sure. I actually eh. might be more germaphobic than you on this one. Yeah, I think you a are. Shocking twist. I, I think you are. It's. I mean, listen. I don't. I don't want to get into the biology, but it's not typically like. Oh, if there's like dirt <laughs> on a piece of toilet paper, it's going <laughs> to cause you to get an. Anal infection. I might get pregnant from it, Matt. I can't. I have to be careful. <laughs> Wait, what's um, going on in those ROH rings? Jeez. <laughs> Question also for anyone that's listening that would have not. We do have ROH alumni that have listened. Um, uh, has what happened to that toilet paper? Hashtag what happened to that TV? Um, I'm gonna tell gu- us. I'm gonna guess that most of it was thrown in the garbage. Trees are weeping. Just anyway. 
We will go to our Wade Keller's review. Matt, if you like adorable Wade Keller, you'll laugh at the last one. Wait till you get a little of this one. So good. Wade Keller's, re- Wade Keller's review of this match. Colt is every substitute teacher's nightmare as he used his humor and wit to draw even more pouty-faced frustration out of Rave. Gander Rave's skit is one of the highlights of attending an ROH event for a fan. When Richards got in a string of offense against Renaro, Colt proudly said, he's my partner. I think it was after a flying shoulder tackle that the crowd chanted, that was awesome. Rave yelled back at them, looking like Dad had just sighed against him in a sandbox argument with his brother, exclaiming, it was just a shoulder tackle. Rave was the best heel I've ever seen live at doing this style of comedy crowd interaction he wasn't campy you really believed everything was getting under his skin and colt was the perfect instigator in the end cabana made renaro tap out really fun match but also really good wrestling richards really came across as a ring technician who would have fit in during the malenko benoit guerrero ecw era i gave the match ring a boost for the crowd interaction by cabana and rave three and a quarter stars i could definitely imagine this match being a lot more fun live especially when you don't see these guys all the time you know i was pretty spoiled yeah by just you know it was not a big deal to see colt cabana and jimmy rave do their thing because i'd seen it a bajillion times even by this point so i just you know there's there's a lot of matches on these b shows where it's like this would be really fun live but on dvd it's just like yeah they're playing to the crowd that i'm not in (laughs) so after the match, the Briscoes come back out with Jay Briscoe again on the mic. He asks Davey, what in Sam, in the, what's in, what in the Sam Hill is your problem? He keeps, you keep teaming up with people that take on us, the Briscoes. You know, first you teamed up with Kenta, then Matt Seidel, and now tomorrow night you're going to team up with Homicide against us. Jay says Richards thinks he's the next big thing in Ring of Honor, but he's nothing but next on the hit list. Davey gets a mic himself and says, everyone didn't come to the show tonight to see two rednecks talk. They came to see some ass kicking, and he challenges them, get in the ring right now for some ass kicking. The Briscoes start to do just that. They start to walk to the ring when the Ring of Honor students stop them. And then Davey at this point just dives to the floor on top of everybody. Uh, Davey gets into a brawl with the Briscoes that goes into the crowd. As Cole Cabana, his tag partner for the night, just watches calmly. He doesn't try to get involved or anything. And then as the Briscoes and Davey are pulled apart, there's some silence. And just before they cut away from the segment, you hear one fan referencing the tights, uh, the the trunks that uh, the Briscoes are wearing, scream out clear as day quote fuck the confederacy so yeah this was one of the early shows where the briscoe sported their confederate flag trunk their trunks and you know kudos to that fan fuck the confederacy we can all get behind that i, um, I think so Next, we get an ad for an FIP DVD, Heatstroke 06, Night 1. First off, I love the idea of a show called Heatstroke. Like, that's just such a funny – like it kind of sounds bad until you think what Heatstroke really is. Like, it's, oh. also, it's also problematic when you've heard, heard stories of indie wrestling shows over the years. Yeah, there's been a lot of wrestling shows that could have been called Heatstroke. But what I love about this ad, Matt, is it's like a highlight video, and it features almost no wrestling action. Instead, most of this highlight video promoting by Heatstroke 06 Night 1 is Brian Danielson arguing with various fans in the front row of these sparsely attended show, including a group of girls who brought a sign to the show comparing Brian Danielson's skin whiteness to Casper the Friendly Ghost. So like, it was like, go see Heatstroke 06. Because you'll get to see Brian Danielson argue with fans. Like, that was the selling point. So, each wrote go six. Hey, I guess there are worse selling points. We, uh... Cut next to Colt Cabana backstage. Colt says after tonight's win, he's got one more agenda tonight, which is to sit and watch and study Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness tonight, because no matter what, he's being Brian Danielson tomorrow night for himself in their scheduled match. He says he's going to do it for himself, his friends, 
his family, and his city. Gabe then does his classic, say, cut, but the camera keeps rolling, promo technique, and Jimmy Jacob walks in to congratulate Colt. Colt gives him this really dismissive, what do you want from me, like, to to Jimmy? Jimmy says, I just want to know about the Lacey and you rumors. You know, I heard about a car rocking. Colt sings some of the ballad of Lacey to Jimmy, then he mocks Jimmy. He tells him, don't worry about it. He says, Jimmy, your self-esteem is way down here. We need to get it way up here. He also, he he also just, keeps calling him weird. Yeah, he's just very dismissive of the guy. I don't, you know. li- I don't like seeing Colt like this. Like, you yeah, know, like, just as like the as like the bully jock. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know him. It's not how he came across in the art of wrestling as like as his actual personality. So, I, and he was still a baby face. So I don't know. I didn't like, I, I didn't like seeing like mean bully Colt. Like it's like this is a feud where everyone comes off bad at different points. As we talked about, like yeah. in the early stages, the Jimmy Jacobs early promos, while they were funny and fantastic, also came off as a very creeper stalker, like kind of in a gross way. I mean, yeah, Lacey, and his character still is that, by the way. Yeah, and Lacey comes off as a very angry, mean, abusive authority figure to Jimmy, and now Colt's coming off as a very dismissive kind of bullying jock where he's just like hey kid haha and just kind of enjoying how much jimmy is being bothered look at this little freak in my class yeah. you know who likes the girl that i'm dating yeah it's it's weird because like you'd, you'd think like just normal good guy cult would be like yeah i'm I'm dating lacy you know just just you have to you have to you have to you have to, you have to accept it guy <laughs> you know something like that as opposed or just to just like weird. You, you should you see the way she treats you like you can't put up with this man you know and instead it's just like haha look at this loser but yeah um <laughs> either way that brings us to um matt seidel defeating a delirious via pinfall in 16 minutes 22 seconds after he hit the moonsault belly to belly superplex um Matt, what did you think about this? Obviously, like they they brought up before, this is a rematch from their first match ever in Ring of Honor. It happened in this very building two and a half years earlier. They get a chance now, a lot more time this time to really go for it. What did you think about this? Yeah, well, it, it it did feel more important because of the promos. You know, it just goes to show promos make a match feel more important. Funny how that works. Um, another funny thing I noticed um, – well, during the entrances, you know, like they do sometimes, they show clips of their previous matches. So they showed a clip of the do or die two match from right before, I think, Reborn completion and also the Reborn stage one match. And for some reason, they showed the clip of the second match first. Uh, I, that's, I don't know why they would do it non chronologically, but they did for whatever reason. Um, during the match, uh, Seidel, or like before the match, actually, um, when Seidel is um, trying to get decide if he was going to shake Delirious's hands, um, was kind of like you know he doesn't really bother doing it, but he does do a really funny thing where when Delirious loses his mind at the bell, Seidel screams and runs away, which is just <laughs> not a role you see Seidel in. So I enjoyed that, and I also enjoyed Seidel being like. You should take some pills or something. Like Seidel was really feeling it of the show in terms of personality. <laughs> um, I also thought there was some unusual camera work here. Like when Seidel had an extreme close, I mean, uh, when Seidel had a side headlock on Delirious, the camera like basically was in an extreme close up. And you don't see that very often. And I thought it looked pretty cool. Um, but, uh, the downside is I think that 
the there was very little crowd reaction, especially for like some of that early mat work and stuff. Um, even like they do a whole thing where they do a series of reversals, arm drags, you know, and you could tell it was a shtick that they've done probably in a million matches they've had together. Um, the crowd round of applause that they were clearly trying to solicit was um, was very muted. So I, you know, I, I felt bad for them there. Um, at one point, Sidal grabs the tassels and yells, "What are these?" And I was like, mm, "Haven't you wrestled this guy like a lot? You probably shouldn't be surprised by the tassels." <laughs> I'm like, "Are you, are we sure that Delirious is the one who doesn't know where he is at this point?" <laughs> um, but then you know they they get into just having more impact moves. Delirious hits a pe- the panic attack for two. Gets the Cobra Clutch. He actually does a cool move where Delirious gets the Cobra Clutch on and then releases it very forcefully to the point where Seidel actually takes a flip bump that like surprises and confuses the announcers. They're like, what? Why did he flip? Like, it was, it was kind of, <laughs> kind of funny. Um, there's another cool spot where Delirious hit the ropes and Seidel caught him almost immediately with a crossbody and they both go over the top rope. Um, and Seidel lands on the apron and Delirious goes to the floor, but he gets his tassel stuck in the ropes. Um, I thought that was a really cool spot. And they, you know, they continue to do cool stuff, but I feel like the intensity is just a little bit lower than it should be. And I think a lot of it is just because it's kind of hard to feel your full level of motivation when the crowd is so quiet. I feel like it would really psych me out if I was wrestling a match and like there was just so much silence in the room. Uh, so I don't blame them for not having the be- the best possible match they could. I thought the coolest spot of the match was Delirious tries like an up and over, um, but Seidel catches him on his shoulders and Delirious spins and turns it almost into like a, I don't know, almost like a Canadian destroyer type of head drop thing. And that actually got a pretty nice reaction. Um, but uh, they end up, you know, trading pitting combos, going for their um, big. They do a bunch of head droppy stuff. Uh, you know, finally Delirious goes up top, and Sidal catches him and goes for the standing belly to belly. But Delirious knocks him off, blocks the head scissors. But Sidal jumps up, hits the moonsault belly to belly that he won their first match in ROH with, and got the quick win. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that the match was a little bit slower than I expect. I thought the quiet crowd hurt the vibe, but I did think this was the best match on the show so far, and I was just, I thought it was a good match. I just thought it was, um, I was hoping for more urgency and intensity, because really at this point, these two should have been putting on a great match to really show how far they've come, and this wasn't that. Yeah, I, I agree here. We're, we're sympathetical again here, because... Um, for the last two matches, we got this very professional, like classic formula, very standard kind of structured matches, but that didn't have much in the way of action. To this kind of felt like the opposite, where it's two guys doing every move they normally do, and they do a lot of cool moves, but there's no structure to it. And there's no real, I don't know. I, I've seen all, I've seen and enjoyed a lot of matches which are just wrestlers running through all these moves, and these two guys, again, particularly Sidal, do plenty of cool moves, but. With these kinds of matches, pace is important to me. Like, I feel like if you just go move, move, move with no time to think, that, that, that kind of works as a, you know, that's a spot fest. When you do a match where that gives you like just, that's just moves, but they give you time to think, you got, you kind of have time to think about all the things that aren't in the match. Like, especially, this, especially when the crowd is quiet for all of it. 
yeah. And this is a match where it's like, it's not bam, 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 breathtaking pace. It's, it's kind of medium mid tempo pace running through all their signature stuff. Like you get that slow mat work opening. And then after that, just here's your stuff. And it made the match kind of feel more, I don't know how to describe it, like artificial exhibition. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but again, there was just time to think about what wasn't there because of the pace of this match. The level action's good. You know, the, there's neat spots. You uh, you mentioned, I think, the two highlights, that big spinning bump Matt Seidel took, which was, like, so out of place. I just love sometimes when a wrestler just decides, you know what, I'm going to take, like, a big rotation bump on this move just because I can, you know, because I'm not, I'm not athletic. I can do it. I liked that. I liked that move you mentioned that was almost like Canadian destroyer S it's hard to describe. The announcers didn't even really know what to call it. I think they called it like the reverse Rana. I don't even know what exactly you would call it. It's just a kind of a flippy do head drop. I know that's not a great name for it. Um, I want to give this like a low good, like say it's like a three star match, but I, I'm giving it like a really high above average, like right below that level, just cause it might have been the crowd had a little bit, but I just felt like this was a match where they were put in a position to be kind of a show stealer with those promos referencing the history, being the third from the top, getting all this time. First match back for intermission, I think. It felt like they were in a position of like Gabe was telling them like, go here, tear it down. And instead it just did really feel more like like I didn't feel like they were doing these guys are a touring indie match. They have a ton of experience from each other. I didn't feel like they were doing anything new here like i didn't like this, I, this felt like a match they would probably do on any indie that they gave 16 minutes to um you know like they were just running through a checklist of all their normal spots they hit each one and then that was it. then they were done so yeah maybe I'm, I'm being a little hard on it but i don't think i'm that hard on it so we'll go to wade keller though wade keller would write this match was booked here because they had their first ROH match, a tryout at the time, two and a half years ago, for Ring of Honor's only other St. Paul appearance. After that tryout match, as soon as Seidel got backstage, ROH booker Gabe Sapolsky asked him, are you busy tomorrow night? Indicating he wanted to add him to the next night's show in Chicago. Seidel looked like he had just been given an unexpected job promotion in the corner office at the time. Since then, both have gotten better, with Delirious especially refining his act of being a kook. <laughs> this was a very good match, and the 16 minutes flew by. Lots of good mat work, some ringside fighting, and a good deal, dose of high spots. In the end, after a believable near fall by Delirious, Seidel hit a top rope belly-to-belly suplex for the win. The two shook hands after the match, seeming to realize they were back where it all started, and were taking in how much they've done in ROH since. Three and a half stars. Um, oh, yeah, I want to mention one other thing I thought was kind of cute, which was... Um, after uh, Delirious kicked out of the Here It Is driver, Seidel gets mad. He shouts out, that's my finish, which one, I don't know how many <laughs> matches he's won with that. But again, that is kind of going to what you said. That is an example, I think, of what you're talking about. Like, he's so corny, it's kind of adorable and lovable. Like, him just being like, that's my finish. I, I, well, I, I yeah, did enjoy that. It's also funny because, yeah, it's it's not his finish, at least not an ROH. Yeah, that'd be like if if if, if someone had broken out of uh, Jay Briscoe's stretch plum tonight and he had said, that's my finish. It's like, no, it isn't, man. But, you know. Luckily for him, it worked tonight. But brings us to the semi-main event, the ROH World Tag Team title match. Austin Aries and Roderick Strong successfully defend their titles when they defeat BJ Whitmer and Samoa Joe in 20 minutes, 2 seconds, when Strong pins Samoa Joe after he hits a Gibson driver. Um, So first off, I guess we're continuing like – Matt, how many times now has Samoa Joe and a random partner tried to go for the tag team titles? Like, just like the 800th time? Like, that's something we should have had a counter for. We had the man-on-woman violence counter, which just started the Samoa Joe challenges for the tag team titles with a random partner counter. Um, 
so on a show where so far most of what we've seen felt like a very B-show performance or some matches I would argue felt like they just didn't quite click, this show I felt like desperately needed a match like this where to me this match is right on the border of very good and great, like three to three and three quarters to four stars. But more importantly, it's a match where I didn't feel like they were holding very much back. It's not their A, maybe it's not their A performance, but it's like a really strong B plus performance from these four guys. I felt like, and it's another match while there isn't much in the way of story. These four really matched up well stylistically where it's four got dudes who can throw hard hitting bombs, throwing down with each other. Everyone in this match gets a sequence where they get brutalized for like at least a minute or two straight, like even Joe. And so this is a match where sometimes a match doesn't need to have a story. Like I criticize matches for not having stories because I like matches have stories, but I feel like. Sometimes a match doesn't need to have a story. It just needs to have like an identity or a flavor. This match didn't have a story, but did have an identity of guys that hit hard, you know, throwing down. And and I thought it was fun for that. I would also say this match gets credit for having a great finishing sequence where BJ Whitmer takes him and Aries out of the match when he does the old suplex a guy over the top rope to the floor, but they hold on. So I go over the top rope too. And BJ takes one of the scariest looking falls I've ever seen on one of those spots of the process. Yeah, like, like right straight down on his head. Like, I don't know if that was just something went wrong or if BJ Whitmer decided, like, this is my last weekend before I get surgery. I'm just going to take a really stupid risk, but it was fucking nuts. And then that leaves jo- Strong and Joe alone in the ring. And Strong gets put in the rear naked choke, but then in a really impressive show of strength, he breaks the hold by hoisting, hoisting Joe onto his shoulders, hits him in the gut buster, hits the sit kick, and then he hits a big Gibson driver for the win, and it's one of those wins where people did not expect he'd get to pin Joe, so you get that little yelp from the crowd for a half second with like, what? Oh, and then they pop, which I thought was really cool. Um, another thing I love about that moment, too, is Joe goes up really heavy on the Gibson driver, like he just rotates just enough, and it's one thing I love about Joe is how heavy he goes up for the rare moves when he leaves his feet. Like, he does that also earlier in this match where um, Strong gets him up for a back suplex, where for a lot of people... A back suplex is just a normal move. Like, it's, you go, oh, that's a fine move. But because Joe doesn't leave his feet that often, he goes up so heavy, and he always comes down looking like he just barely got into a safe position. You go, holy shit, that seemed like a big match, it, like a, a big deal in this match. I will say there was a missed opportunity in this match. Um Aries has his ribs taped up from the legit rib injury he suffered on the UK double shot. And early on, we get one extended sequence where they really work over his ribs to a surprising degree for a guy with a, like a legit injury. Like he gets kicked in the ribs. He gets tossed around. It's good. It, it kind of affected me. I was like, I'm kind of into this. You could have had a whole story around that. And then after that sequence, they never really focus on the ribs again. He never really sells them seriously again. It's just a us doing moves match. It's a thread they could have built into a story, but they ignored it to do the same kind of match they could do on any other night. But to their credit, the match they could do on any other night turned out to be a very good match. So I'm not going to really complain much. Um, so yeah, I would just say again, this is a good 20 minutes of guys throwing down like B plus level effort. I, I guess the way I would sum it up, Matt was, I feel like there were other matches on the show where you go, Oh yeah, this is like what I would expect on a B show, but you wouldn't be happy with it. And this is like on the upper limit of what you would expect on a B show. Like if I feel like if you get this on a B show, you're very happy with it. You're like, this is either meeting the very highest end of my expectations or maybe exceeding them a little bit. So I would say credit to these guys. This was to me the best match on the show thus far. And maybe I'll have more to add to that later. Uh, I have a, I feel like I like this a bit less than you. I, uh, 
I do think it was the best match on the show so far, definitely. And I thought that the finishing sequence was awesome. Um, you know, and, but there was, I mean, you could tell, like, I'd say it was, you know, for some of the match, maybe it wasn't even quite their B plus level. Um, you know, like there were like consecutive chin locks at one point. Joe was like tagging in, then tagging out a lot. There was a spot that I, uh, you know, my pet peeve spot where, Whitmer is beaten down for a while. He tags in Joe for the hot tag, and then he gets tagged back in himself, like, very shortly thereafter. I never like that. Um, but, you know, the crowd is definitely hot for Joe versus Aries. I thought that both Strong and Joe brought certainly brought their A game when it comes to chops. Uh, early in the match, there was a spot where, like, Whitmer and Strong do some reversals and do spots where they try to do, like, the flip over and land on my feet thing and they both kind of don't quite land on their feet um but you know that's okay um there's also another spot that i enjoyed where um whitmer is uh working over aries ribs then he tags in joe and he yells ribs ribs which which probably meant (laughs) which probably meant he wanted joe to attack aries ribs but maybe it meant that he wanted to eat ribs and was hoping that joe would give him some um but yeah, ribs is just happen. a really ob- objectively funny thing to yell out. Yes, ribs, ribs. Um, but it did happen. But yeah, no, that that final sequence with the uh, the big back suplex that was awesome, and uh, you know, ba- I can getting backdropped by Joe onto Whitmer on the floor. Um, then the senton and the heat seeking missile by Aries and the missile drop kick right into Strong's clutches. Uh, you know that that was an awesome sequence. Um. You know, the chop brain buster combo on Whitmer, the, uh, the Joe Whitmer lariat backdrop combo on Strong, you know, all that. I mean, just, they, they just were really running through it. So, I mean, if the last three minutes of a match can make or break a match, they definitely made this match and it turns it into something very good. Um, but I didn't really like it as much for most of the duration. Um, like I was almost a cliche of some of these ROH matches, like flipping a switch in the last few minutes. And I'd say even more pronounced than usual because the early part I thought was a little bit dull. And the final stretch was just like so great. Like the final stretch of a four and a half star match, you know? And I think the rest of the match was dull enough, at least for me that it brought it to, I'd say below four stars, but still that, that, you know, that final sequence is awesome. That Gibson driver, by the way, that strong one with was like a, top tier Gibson driver and it was a great finish. Um, yeah. So definitely, uh, definitely the match of the night so far. And again, now it's going to build to like a little mini Joe strong feed where they're going to have a singles match in a couple shows. Like when's the, when does that ever happen in wrestling? Samoa Joe and Roderick strong. <laughs> but um, I also will point out uh, this might be the image I end up using for the show. This, this episode, because very rare that people make signs for Ring of Honor shows. And someone made a sign that Joe holds up. He's so happy with it during the, his entrance that says rest in peace, Austin Aries and Roderick strong cause of death, Samoa Joe. And he's just like, I, I, I managed, to get a screen cap where he just looks so satisfied like smugly like in a, an adorable way like yeah look at this sign yeah i'm gonna kill these guys it, it was just very I, I enjoyed it um wade keller liked this match more than either of us matt uh, i'll go to his review that he first off he wrote that's so classy of joe to put over an roh up-and-comer knowing it won't affect his future in tna or eventually wwe but it can do wonders for elevating strong joe was really good but there was a noticeable economy to his performance in this match not killing himself or trying to get in every signature spot of his i, Overall, def- I definitely agree with that 
Overall, a very good tag match. A good match to show a wrestling fan who thinks the best tag wrestling gets is America's Most Wanted matches, which are good, but not great, or WWE's tag division, which could be very good, but aren't given the chance. Four and a quarter stars. So, Wade liked this quite a bit. Um, And now... After the match, Prezak screams how strong just pinned Samoa Joe, who do, which does put it, put it over as a big deal. Like he, They're really t- acting like this is a big deal. He then also keeps pushing the mystery of who stole Ares and Strong's title belts and then later returned them to them. Uh, so Dave Prezak not reading Chris Hero's live journal. Uh, the crowd chants. That was awesome. Next, we join christopher daniels backstage who says he's heard all the talk amongst fans that he doesn't seem to think that don't, that don't seem to think that he has a clear direction these days in ring of honor daniels says his goals have always been clear he wants to be a champion in ring of honor once again and tomorrow night he and matt Seidel challenge aries is strong for the tag team titles gabe then again does the cut gimmick camera keeps rolling jimmy jacobs wanders into frame he asks daniels if he's seeing where lacy is uh, Daniels is about to answer him, and then he kind of catches himself and goes, he tells Jimmy Jam, as Daniels calls him, it's, it's not my place to tell you. You, you gotta, I'm gonna let you find out for yourself. Jimmy then walks away in the classic Ring of Honor style where whatever the guy needs to see is about six feet away from where they are naturally. So he walks about the six feet to the shower stalls where he finds Colt Cabana and Lacey making out in the shower stalls fully clothed, which, you know, that's what you do. Um, and I, I wrote my notes, Matt. Didn't Colt just say in his promo that he was going to study Danielson's match tonight and how important it was for him to study it? And now <laughs> here he is right before the match making out with Lacey. That is a very um, good point. Very relatable. You know, we have important things in life and then women. Well, you, um, know, well, you know, sometimes, you know, you um, you have important jobs to do, like either watching a wrestling match or being a congressperson, and you're just caught doing sex stuff with people on camera. And it's, it's a problem. I I have definitely blown off things much more important than wrestling for the love of a woman. I, I remember mean, I'm, I'm Trevor. I'm making a pop culture or, or current events reference. I should say, <laughs> Oh, I just ruined it. I'm, I'm not going to get the Matt F trophy this episode. Am I? But, um, anyway, Lacey says, uh, They've got more to focus on. They've got to focus on more important things. You know, you can't let Jimmy. We can't freak out. We got to focus on more important things like Colt winning a title for Lacey's Angels. And Colt seems both confused and bemused for this. Like he's just like Lacey's Angels. Like you think I'm part of this? And then the two of them walk away as Jimmy breaks down and collapses in the showers. So uh, I, I we're, feel, we're I, I feel like I just cut off a what would have been a good Trevor Dame story, and I think we need to hear it now. No, I was just because I've probably done this anecdote before. The first time I realized I was ever in love, and this is so sad. This, this is this is the most sad thing. Was um, I ordered Royal Rumble 2001 on period. I was going to watch it live, and then my girlfriend showed up and was like, "Hey, I want to hang out." And then I had my mom tape it for me, and I was like, man, I'm not going to see the Royal Rumble live. And then I thought, I don't care. She's better than the Royal Rumble. And then I thought, Trevor, you're in love. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. And I was like, this is – I remember even the moment realizing this is a really sad reason way to realize you're in love with somebody to be like but it's a big deal i'm not watching the 2001 royal rumble the 2001 royal rumble was one of the wwe's best pay-per-views at that point are you sure she was better you know what match she was um she, okay, well, she, she was well then you found someone special and i guess lost them so good job um <laughs> god, damn, god damn you matt um <laughs> You're not making the TWD 500 this week, I can tell you that much. But Ring of Honor, world title, best two out of three falls, main event, 
Brian Danielson, the champion, successfully defends the title when he goes to a one-hour, one-fall-to-one-fall time limit draw. Brian Danielson was able to pin Nigel in 25 minutes, 19 seconds with a small package. Then Nigel was able, or as I wrote in my notes, by Joel McGinnis, made a Brian Danielson submit to a random arm submission, maybe that arm submission in 38.55. It was, not, it was in, not that arm submission, but I'll get to it. And then they went to the time limit draw in 60 minutes. There is a quote from Brian – why do I keep thinking B? Brian Danielson. There was a quote from Brian Danielson in his book. Oh. Yes, by Daniel Bryan. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna take my spot of the Matt, book. Matt, no. The, the floor is – it is just a brief quote, but do you want to give the quote? What does – let's set the tale by – before we say what we thought of this, what does Brian Danielson think of this match? So I had started reading the paragraph where he talks about his series of hour-long matches on the Fight of the Century episode. Um, where he said he doesn't remember anything about the Samoa Joe match. He does remember something about the Nigel McGuinness match, which is, quote, The second hour-long match was against Nigel in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was probably the worst of all the matches Nigel and I had against each other, and he got a concussion to boot. Everything about it was regrettable. End quote. So I will, I will say this. I am fascinated to um, – you're going to get to go first. I am fascinated to what you think about this match because I, I I have some pretty strong feelings about this match. And I was surprised. I probably wrote more for like my little note review of this match, like just my th- thoughts of this match than I, I expected, more than most matches on Through the Year's History. Um, and Brian Danielson has strong thoughts as we sure you just read. So what do you think? about well, this 60-minute time limit draw. Well, I certainly don't think everything about it was regrettable. Um, obviously, some things. Uh, Nigel McGuinness getting a concussion is, in fact, regrettable. Um, so I remember on the Fight of the Century episode, uh, we were talking with uh, Phil Schneider about how Danielson said that in his 60-minute matches during this era, he didn't put a lot of forethought into them and didn't plan um, peaks and valleys the way he would now. And he just kind of went out there and did it. And this is definitely more so than in the Joe match, a match where you can tell. There were points late in this match where they were just like very clearly repeating stuff and killing time. And that was a little bit sad because you don't really see that much in Danielson matches. But I will say, I thought the first fall of this match was a hoot and a half. Um, The first fall of this match mostly revolved around Brian Danielson working a headlock for a really long time and fooling around with the crowd while he did it to the point where the crowd started popping huge every time he locked in the headlock. Um, There was one point early in the match where Danielson locks in a headlock and a guy yells, boring, and Danielson gets a huge smile on his face and he goes, that's right, all my offense is boring, so fuck off, which gets a nice little pop. Um, he eventually, you know, turn, he does variations of the headlock, turns it into a cravat. Whenever he gets the hold broken, he grabs it again. He really locks it on super tight. And like at certain points, he grapevines Nigel's arms and legs with his legs so he could le- lock in the headlock. At one point, he says, I'm not releasing this headlock for 60 minutes, which gets a pop. But I'm thinking, did he just give away that this was going to go 60 minutes? But then I was like, <laughs> but then I was like, you know, the crowd probably figured it out. You know, like I don't think that they were kind of like shocked by that. Um, but um, there was a "We Love Headlocks" chant. Um, 
there was, you know, you can make the critique, which I think is fair, that because they're being so goofy and clearly having so much fun, it makes it feel a lot more like a performance and less, less like a contest. And what nothing uh, kind of demonstrates that more than a point where Danielson locks in a chin lock on Nigel and the crowd cheers again and chants headlock. And Nigel yells while he's been brutalized by these headlocks for like 15 to 20 minutes and is in a chin lock. He yells, this is a chin lock, not a headlock. Know your wrestling or learn your wrestling. And it's like, Nigel, shouldn't you be selling the fact that you're in a lot of pain right now and not goofing around? Was that Nigel or was that a fan? No, I think that was Nigel. Jeez. I thought that was a fan. Oh, my God. I mean, I'll go back and look, but I'm almost positive that was Nigel who said that. Um, <laughs> while he was in the headlock, while he was in the chin lock. So, I'm, but listen, so I could definitely understand someone critiquing that whole segment, but, but I cannot deny that it was incredibly entertaining. And now, since Danielson is claiming this is like his year long retirement tour and he wants to work indies and stuff, please go somewhere and do another match where he works it entirely around a headlock. I would love it. And I know there was a match that he did in PWG with Claudio, right? Where it really was literally yeah. just headlocks, right? Like that was like it, the whole match. Like the whole match was one uninterrupted headlock or most of it, something like that, where you just – where instead of a series, I think it was maybe just one. I'm not even sure. Yeah. So I mean I'd like to go back and watch that. But do that again, Danielson. Come on. you. The fact that you got this crowd, this quiet crowd to get so into headlocks – you can do it again. I think you can. Um, eventually, Nigel does take control during the first fall, and he starts working on uh, Danielson's arm and shoulder. And it's funny because you know he works the shoulder a lot to the point where there's a spot in the second fall where Danielson tries to get um, Todd Sinclair to like start yanking on his shoulder to pop it back into place. And it's like, isn't that so like uncanny that they work this match with like him separating his shoulder when he famously really shoots separates his shoulder early in the 60 minute match the very next night yeah that, that that's insane and it's apparently he did have like a um a a real separated shoulder i think before he separates it the next night so it's like did he will this into existence? Like, yeah, is this I don't some know. kind of like self karma or something? Yeah, I guess maybe the fact that the shoulder was already vulnerable made it more likely to happen during the uh, mis- yeah. the unfortunate spot the next night. But yeah, so so I really enjoyed this first um, this first sequence. Nigel does some cool stuff with the um, you know with the the arm. He does an anaconda vice actually at one point, and it's it's interesting because. It's a long headlock sequence followed by a long arm work sequence by Nigel. There's like almost no back and forth, which makes it a very unique match because ROH matches in particular have a lot of back and forth, you know, there's especially the tag matches, but even the singles matches. This is like this first fall is just one guy dominates for a really long time. The other guy dominates for a really long time. Uh, and eventually Danielson, uh, hits a drop kick to break up Nigel's momentum. And then he hits a tope where he actually lands like sitting on top of the guardrail, which is, I, I've, I don't know if I've ever seen someone land on a tope like that. So that was unique. Um, but you know, they continue to work. Danielson actually hits a fez press and then I, he locks in the label lock, which I think that's the first time I've ever seen him. I, I'd ever seen him do that hold. Um, I don't, I, can you remember him? we doing the label lock no, before I, that. I I divide that rationale like whoa this is like ten years later Ryan Danielson yeah it was it was weird but um so so the first fall is fun and you know uh, Danielson eventually wins by just like 
uh, he, uh, Nigel grabs his boot, flips him over. He lands, Danielson lands on his feet and locks in the small package and gets the win. I thought that was a great first fall. I, I, I had no complaints about the first fall at all. And, and then, you know, I mean, I know I could see somebody having a complaint that it was just too lackadaisical or not like serious enough for a world title match, but it was fine. It was fine. Like, I, I don't mind that at all at this point. They've worked so many matches. Let them do something like that. So now in the second fall, you know, it's a, it becomes a little bit more hard hitting. Um, you know, Nigel can't really get a solid comeback going because Danielson hits a lot of slaps. He looks really dominant here. Um, Danielson does, you know, does the surfboard or teases it, does the figure four. Um, he, uh, he gets on Nigel's shoulders and Nigel actually climbs up two turnbuckles and hits an electric chair drop, um, locks in a key lock. And Danielson makes it to the ropes. But then Danielson tries to repeat the spot from the second match they had against each other where he crawls underneath the ring and sneaks up behind Nigel. And instead of hitting another small package, he hits a missile dropkick to the back. But Nigel walks into the rebound lariat. Danielson kicks out, but Nigel locks in another key lock and gets the tap out. Which I thought this was a pretty good fall too. Yeah, I don't think I was I was waiting for Nigel to put on that arm submission. I don't think he ever actually does in this match. But I enjoyed the finishing sequence of that fall. I think it's actually the third fall where things start to go a little bit wonky because they just, it's just, I almost, I don't, there was like 20 minutes left in the match. And it felt like maybe they were hoping there were going to be less than 20 minutes. Like they do, <laughs> like they do some big spots, you know, non, Nigel does a head hip toss out of the corner, then another. He does the headstand, but Danielson actually hits a headbutt into the upside down Nigel, which was like kind of a wow spot. Danielson hits the belly to back superplex, does a cattle mutilation. Nigel gets his foot on the bottom rope. And then the momentum stops. The crowd gets quiet again. Danielson does, I'd say, his third or fourth like slapping Nigel sequence, where Nigel tries to come back with weak slaps of his own. And so Danielson like knocks his hand into Nigel's nose, busts it open. I think it was actually already busted open, locks in a chin lock. One thing I will notice, I will note about this, as Danielson continues to work the headlocks and the chin locks and like bust Nigel's nose, Nigel really does look like he's been in a real fight. Like his face just looks up fucked up at this point. He has, I, at one point I wrote, if he had a swollen eye, I'd say it looked like he was in a real fight. And then later in the match, he actually does get a swollen eye. So it's like, Whatever you could say about this match, it was definitely brutal on Nigel. Like, he really looks messed up. And obviously, you find out he has a concussion. So, I mean, he was messed up. Um, but Nigel, but Danielson does it continues to do like a, a series of different leg holds, combines that with an arm hold. And at one point, Prezak says he's seemingly inventing new moves as he goes along. And that is something that Danielson does. They continue to have other snap. Um, like uh, slap fights at one point Danielson ends the slap fight with by blowing snot in Nigel's face um, um, they, they they just go back and forth it, it, it's like I don't know this this final like 20 minutes it just feels like they're like like what do we do now you know and and that's sad you know the, uh, the da- Nigel hits the uh, top rope straddle lariat um, then he hits some more headbutts but Daniel starts headbutting him back it's a bridging straight jacket suplex for two. Danielson hits his own Tower of London, which is, I think, the first time I can remember someone else doing that hold. Gets a two count off that. Um, he goes for another diving headbutt. Nigel gets his foot up and locks in the cattle mutilation on Danielson. 
Danielson makes the bottom rope. Then he avoids the Tower of London, but Nigel escapes cattle mutilation, puts Danielson back up, hits the Tower of London for a good two count, and that's probably the best near fall pop so far. Then he goes for another top rope straddling lariat, but Danielson catches him in his arm, locks in cattle mutilation again, so that felt very contrived. Nigel makes the ropes again. Um, now Danielson starts kicking Nigel. Nigel catches him, catches his leg, flips him over just like they did at the end of the first fall. But this time Nigel hits a really great lariat for two, which was a good spot. Nigel locks in the key lock again, and the ref announces there's five minutes left. So now this is their cue. Um, Nigel repeatedly slaps Brian. Brian seems out of it, but he gets a sudden nip up, slaps Nigel, collapses again. They keep trading spots, uh, uh, shots, but Nigel gets crazy on him with slaps, but tires out. So Danielson hits a roaring elbow. Nigel rebounds. Danielson hits another roaring elbow. So Nigel rebounds again, hits the rebound lariat, gets the two count, locks in the cattle mutilation again. Nigel does. And at this point, it's like, okay, yeah, you're definitely repeating yourselves. Um, uh, Nigel hits another Tower of London, again, repeating yourselves, locks in another key lock. And this is when Danielson counters, starts hitting the elbows that he won at Unified with. Um, and I thought, you know, good for Danielson for having the restraint to hold on to like the last minute to do those elbows. Um, Nigel seems out of it, but Sinclair doesn't stop it. And eventually Nigel fires up, starts hitting elbows of his own, and that's when the time limit runs out. So it was a good finish. Um, it was a very brutal match, very hard hitting, uh, which has made it memorable. The first fall was super memorable and different, but it just felt like they didn't have enough stuff for 60 minutes. Like there was just so much repetition that I was surprised by. And also, I wish they'd had a hotter crowd. Um, there's a fireworks going on outside of that. So if uh, you hear anything, that's what it is. I don't know what they're for. But, um, but yeah, um, this match, uh, I don't know. I definitely don't think it was bad. Like, I think it was, it was in a lot of ways really good because they're both really good. But it was, it probably didn't need to be an hour. And I, um, I I guess what I value about this match is they did something very different because they could. And sometimes I like different for the sake of different. And I'd say, at least for part of this match, it was different for the sake of different. So I agree on a lot of points. Um, I wonder, once I finish talking, how my final feelings will be. But um, there's a lot to say about this match. So let me start with the good. I'll, I'll go with what the, I, the things I like first. I think you could show me almost any isolated five-minute chunk from any point in this match, and it would look like a match I would want to see. And some five-minute chunks you could pull from this match would, again, in isolation, look like a match I would say, I absolutely have to see this match. This, is, this looks incredible. These are two fantastic wrestlers top-level pros who have quite a bit of experience with each other at this point, obviously. They're sharing a ring for an hour. There's a floor to that that's very high, you know, even at their worst, which I'm going to give a spoiler. I think this is – I I agree with Daniels. I think this is their worst match. I still think there's a floor to that. That's really high. This match also, it's the sti- it's the they had the stip going into this match. So this was Nigel's last challenge for the RH World title as long as Brian is champ. So the the two out of three fall draw gives you kind of a cute twist to it where, you know, Nigel doesn't lose, but he also doesn't win. And because of the stip, he can't challenge again. So kind of it's a way to keep him kind of strong, but but also end the feud in a way. Um, this would end up being their last singles match against each other for nine months. So within this match, it does in some ways 
kind of feel like a feud ender, there's like a lot of callbacks to their entire feud, which in one sense does make it like a good capper to the last, to the feud they've had. Like Brian, like you mentioned, you've mentioned a lot of these, but like Brian does the crawl under the ring and come out the other side to surprise your opponent trick. He beat Nigel within a previous match, except this time instead of the small package goes for the drop kick. Nigel uses the momentum to turn it into a rebound lariat for a near fall. And then when he kicks out of the near fall, he does the arm submission to get the win. I mean the, the fall. So that's a nice little callback that Nigel has figured, you know, he, he doesn't fall to it this time. Um, they do the callback to the infamous ring post head ram spot where Nigel tries to do it to Brian. It's blocked. Brian tries to do it to Nigel. It's blocked. Then Nigel rams Danielson's arm into the ring post, which starts that whole series of arm work that will play throughout the rest of the match. You know, Brian does his big springboard dive into the crowd. And just like the match that Nigel won by countout, he pulls up a chair at the last second for Danielson to hit into it on the dive. So of course Danielson survives this one. Um, Nigel even does like a mini version, I would say, of the Liverpool match whole cup. And, but this time Brian just takes him down, puts him in a headlock. Like, I know what's coming. I'm not going to let you get all the way ramped up. I'm just going to take you down. Like, I like, so this match was full. And then even the very end obviously is a big callback where Nigel survives the head, the elbows that beat him in Liverpool and then puts Brian in the mess time expires. So I loved basically this was like a love letter to all their old matches in terms of callbacks. Um, and as you might expect for a big feud wrap up, you know, this is also like you mentioned a match where they were doing each other's moves. Like Nigel does the cumulation quite a bit in this match. Brian does the tower of London, like you mentioned. So, you know, sometimes I feel wrestlers can overdo the, we do each other stuff, but I felt like in a match like this at the end of a feud going for an hour, it felt earned. And I appreciate, I, I got a kick out of seeing them do each other stuff. Um, and also had this match also had a fair share of something, I, I like in long matches, which is wrestlers forced to do things they rarely or never do because they just need to fill the time. Like, how often do you see Brian Danielson do a Fez press? I think I've seen him once or twice on through the years before this do a Fez press. How often do you see Nigel do the electric chair drop off the second turnbuckle? Maybe once before this in Ring of Honor? You know, even like you mentioned, the the headstand headbutt where Nigel does the headstand and Danielson just flies in with a headbutt. That was a crazy new thing. And then going to what you said, I think my favorite part of this match is that first 20 minutes. I think that's an absolute masterclass from Brian Danielson. I think, you know, like lots, like lots of long matches, it starts with slow mat work. And after just four minutes into this, I looked at the time, someone starts chanting boring and it's one person, the crowd turns on them. And I've talked about Brian Danielson doing this kind of thing before where so many wrestlers, when they get heckled, they either panic and start like really going to quick spots quickly, like, oh shit, I, I gotta get, get, win this crowd over, or they just ignore it and it gets kind of awkward. Brian Danielson is such a pro. He never, he doesn't do that. He leans into it and he makes it, you know, he makes that fan the focus of the next 20 minutes of the match where I'm going to headlock this guy, Nigel, all the time. I'm going to rub it in that fan's face. I'm going to keep calling out that fan, you know, as you mentioned, all the different things about that he mentioned, you know, so, so, personal. Wait, so, wait, so you think that the headlock thing was a direct result of what that fan said? You don't think it was what his plan was? I don't think it, I, I, I'm guessing. His plan was, you know, to do slow mat work to start. And once he saw that one fan didn't like it, I, I think he decided I'm going to lean into this. And then you'll notice when he first does the headlocks in the first two or three minutes, like the fans are politely are polite, but they're quiet, you know, and it's only after he starts getting on that fan and really playing it up 
the, the fans then start, like you were saying, go crazy for it. They start popping for the headlock. They start requesting the headlock. So I think he probably real, my guess, I don't know this for a fact. My guess is based on the way he worked it is he leaned into it way more because once he realized if I kind of, shove it in this fan's face everyone else now loves this i now I, it's I, still, I still think it was part of the plan because that first headlock where the crowd where the fan yelled boring he was like really clamping it on like a vice and like not letting him release it and like like even before the fan yelled that so i think you're right he might have like played it up for the fan but i think he's still planning on working a lot like a headlock centric fall but you know you who knows maybe not Danielson obviously doesn't remember one way or the other because yeah. he thought everything about the match was regrettable. <laughs> I, I will say, though, wh- whether you're right or I'm right or, or whatever, I'm not even confident in my theory here. Um, I, I think it is like a ma- this one. These are one of the kind of things where it's this is definitely not close to Brian Danielson's best match. But these are the kind of things I think of when I think of Brian Danielson as one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, because, I, again, I think it's a master class that first 20 minutes and. You take something that's – you take a heckle, you take a very boring move, and you turn to the maybe the thing that the fans want most that's giving them like a huge kick is – because you turn – like the headlock is just a headlock, but he made it mean something. He made it mean I'm imposing my will. I'm sticking it to this fan. I'm, I'm showing everybody you know, I'm going to wrestle the way I want to wrestle, and he did it with such personality and just inventiveness. He turned it into the absolute highlight. So those are the good things. Now let's talk about the bad things. So on through the years, we've seen a bunch of 60-minute matches, Matt. We saw the four-way Iron Man match, crowning a champion. We saw Joe versus Punk, one and two. We saw Arias versus Daniels not testing the limit, which went well over 60. We saw Punk versus Christopher Daniels, and we just rewatched Joe versus Danielson in the draw. I can tell you, Matt, having watched this match, of all those 60-minute matches, and you, you touched on this, I have never seen a 60-minute match in Ring of Honor that felt more nakedly like two guys desperately trying to fill the time than this match. Like, even one of the Joe Punk matches, which we love, um, Joe talked in that ROH shoot interview where he was like, at one point in that match, I was just out of ideas. Like, I was glad the fan heckled me because it gave me something to do for a minute. I will say that match doesn't feel close to this match in terms of a match where it feels like people ran out of ideas. And I know people are going to say— The the only match that came close that we watched was Daniels versus Punk. But even yeah. that, I would say not as much. Like, I know some people might say, Trevor, aren't all 60-minute matches full of just guys desperately trying to fill time? Or you, they might even say, Trevor, like, aren't all wrestling matches, period, guys trying to fill time? You might even say, Trevor, isn't all of life just people trying to desperately <laughs> find random ways to fill time? And I would say yes to all three of those things. But what I would add, Matt, is I think in wrestling, time passes smoother and more more pleasurably in wrestling when there's some continuity. When it doesn't just feel like you're seeing 15 minutes of disconnected spots, even though, again, you could argue wrestling is just a stunt show like that. But I think either you want to be bam, 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 so fast next time you can't think – which again, you can't do that in a 60 minute match. You can't go at that pace for 60 minutes or you want some kind of story. You want to build some momentum. You want like something that has a beginning, middle and end, or like you were saying how Danielson would learn later to build in like peaks and valleys into something, uh, you know, a, a smooth pace, even that just ramps up and peaks at the very end. You know, this match, I don't feel any of that. There, there's those fun callbacks. There's that fun masterwork kind of slow start with the headlocks, but everything in this match to me felt disconnected. Like um, you get Mance a slow mat work, then you get Mance a big moves, and then it's back to the mat work in a way that feels random. You don't get these – you get these big strike standoffs 
that are supposed to feel epic. And I feel if they had built them, they would have felt epic. But they don't feel like these big climactic moments of the match. They just feel like random moments in the match. Like, oh, here's something else we can do. This this will kill all another minute. Um, even like 15 minutes left in the match, where the match is starting to what, build to what you think is the hot end, then Danielson just puts D- Nigel back in like a random ass submission out of nowhere. And it, it just everything about this match just feels like. And then you point out near the end how many times they just repeat like finisher finishers and i know that was and, sl- and slap, was fight, and slap fights and uh and the tower of london and it's like all right we just saw this yeah yeah and, and it, i know nigel would start to be a guy who would repeat like his he would kind of spam his finishers but this felt different than that this was two guys i, I definitely agree with you this felt like two guys who were just like we still got that much time left like fuck i guess we'll just we can do this again. We can do this again. We can do this again. And for guys, especially Danielson, both these guys, I think are amazing wrestlers, but especially Danielson, who I think is one of the greatest of all time that he was just at such a loss. Like I've rarely seen him. Like one thing you usually can't say about Brian Danielson is he's not inventive enough. And here it's like, yeah, he's just out of ideas and nothing's really holding together. And um, even like the Joe Danielson match we just watched, which I think is a better match than this. We, we agreed it wasn't like a match of the year level, but they came up with like a nice solution to that match where it was like two half an hour matches where they kind of slowly ramped up. And just when it felt like it was getting to like, the hot stretch run at the 30 minute mark. They had one of the guys get like hurt and then they had the other guy work on that injury and they slowly ramp the match up for the next 30 minutes. So they basically worked the match twice, which is what, which is, which is what Danielson did in that first 60 minute match against Adam page too, where like the first half of the match was what it was. And then the second half, uh, there was, you know, page was bleeding and then it was like, okay, like now we have this to work around in our second half. You know, it's like, it's just, it's, it's, it's a smart way to do something. Yeah. It's, it's a classic way to work a 60 minute match to kind of break it down to two 30 minute matches. But this match doesn't do that. This match is like all over the place. It's like, you know, it's slow. Then here's like a real hot sequence, then a little bit slow again. And again, it, nothing feels like it's building towards the next thing. It just feels like two guys thinking, shit, what can we do next? Uh, how about we do this? Okay. Let's do it. And again, cause they're fantastic wrestlers. Moment to moment, there's a lot of fun moments in it. The work looks really good. I mean, these are two excellent wrestlers. But yeah, I've never seen a 60-minute match in Ring of Honor where there's no real forward thrust. It feels so – it's just two really talented wrestlers doing things they can do for 60 minutes in a really messy, discombobulated kind of way. And even listen to the fans. Like, this crowd has been weird the whole night. But if you listen to them, it does feel like even by the end of the match, like they never turn on the match other than that one or two fans. But it does feel like they're not even getting as much out of the big sequences near the end as they would have maybe at the start of the match. Like it does feel like this crowd's kind of like, oh, this is <laughs> this has been a lot. Um, they're getting good reactions, but not great reactions like I think they would have gotten later. So I guess how I would sum this up is it's hard for me to know how to rate this match because, again, this is a match where if you watch any moment in isolation – I think it's enjoyable. There are moments within this match I love. The first 20 minutes have that Danielson performance that you and I, I think, both agree are just really great. But it just doesn't build to be larger than the sum of its parts. And in a 60-minute match, if you have, it's a match that's just a, a parts, that's a lot of parts, man. That's a lot. Of, that's kind of a slog. To me, this match ended up being – it felt like the best I could compare it to is this is like a match where you go on a long trip – to go to a destination and you have fun at the destination. But when you get back home, you're like, I had fun, but it wasn't worth the trip. Like it wasn't worth staying at the hotel. It wasn't worth all the driving. Like there was fun moments there. And I think that's what this, I would give this, this is like a strong, good 
maybe a low, very low, very good, but probably just a stronger, I'll give it like a three and a half star match, but I would have a hard time recommending this match because I would just be like, there's fun. It's not worth the trip. That's the best way I would put it. It's not worth the trip. Um, but let's get some opinions from other people. Um, the Observer, Dave wrote, based on live reports, the idea was to establish Danielson as a throwback to the old school NWA champions. The matches on August 25th in St. Paul against Nigel Beginnis and the next night in Chicago against Colt Gabbana had some detractors because of the slow starts, but most of the response we got was very favorable. There were some boring chants at Danielson versus McGinnis when he worked out of a side headlock for a long period of time. It took on a life of its own. As fans started yelling at the fans chanting boring and thus would chant for the length, lengthy headlock. By the end, it was a great match. It's kind of funny because, again, it sounds like Matt, like one of our favorite parts of the match is the part that in this live report is like, well, it got to be great by the end. To me, you and me, I feel like the fun's the first 20. Like that's the yeah. part that has a lot of color to it. Yeah, I, I have a feeling like that sort of wouldn't have been the consensus, what, what Dave what Dave wrote there. It wouldn't have been con- the consensus of the live crowd. And then that I know you get if anyone gets a bigger kick on me about like the adorable Wadeisms and and little weight things that capture Wade's uh, imagination, it's you. You've gotten you had one of the best Matt laughs earlier to one of the way things that was so adorable. I think we might top it. Matt. I the best Wade is for last. I saved it here. Um, I might start. Okay, I'm a, I'm over but let's go to this Wade Keller's review of this match. Danielson spent the majority of the first half of the match applying headlocks, but he should have a t-shirt that says no ordinary headlocks. <laughs> Matt, he thinks they should have a t-shirt that says no ordinary headlocks. Like <laughs> who would buy that? Who would buy a shirt that says no ordinary headlocks? Also, but also like what is that? I don't understand. Like how does that even make sense? What does that have to do with anything? He didn't say that during the match. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, the headlock. I mean, and they also were kind of ordinary headlocks at most of the time. Like yeah. So yeah, I just that, that is so Wade. That is Wade never changed. That is so fucking adorable that you think he should have a shirt that says "No Ordinary Headlocks." Well, but, I don't. I don't think Wade's ever been known for like being good at creating t-shirts. <laughs> so um, Wade continues. The crowd actually chanted, "That was awesome!" And holy shit, at Danielson's headlocks, it was a new era smart fan chant that was actually was mocking those who wouldn't appreciate Danielson's style. And there were a few hecklers in the crowd, but they got shouted down pretty quickly and decisively by the ROH faithful who knew what they came to see and were getting it. Danielson really has a knack for interacting with the crowd, but very different from how, say, Jimmy Rave does. He comes across not irritated by fans, but as if he is mentally superior to them and is not only in total control of his opponent, but is there to play psychological games with the fans. True. It's a different di- – yeah, yeah, he, he definitely got nailed like Danielson's approach there, absolutely. It's a different dynamic than anything else I've seen. During the match, despite the deliberate pace and two out of three fall guarantee that they wouldn't miss the ultimate finish until at least the third fall, the fans sat and watched intensely. The bathroom was virtually unvisited for 60 minutes. There was no concession or merchandise table activity. I love the idea that Wade is just like eagle eye watching the bathroom. Every yeah, yeah, like, I mean, like, wouldn't you have to be <laughs> in the bathroom to know that? <laughs> It was at times like watching a chess match, but everyone sat there staring. In the third fall, that intense investment in the match began to turn to bursts of crowd heat and anticipation for a finish before the 60-minute time limit. The final 10 minutes would be must-see viewing, even for the most impatient fans who prefer Dragon Gate's tag-team-style matches over the style of Danielson and Nigel. Excellent match, but again, those first 30 minutes aren't for everybody and probably played better live than on DVD. There were some people who left during the first 30 minutes, but not many, and 
few hecklers, but not many. That that match played well to the Ring of Honor fans who attended. It's not the type of match ROH should be headlining with a year from now, but what's special about ROH is that its main event style varies so widely, but is always state-of-the-art, four and a quarter stars. Why shouldn't they be main eventing, why shouldn't they be main eventing within a year? I didn't get that part. I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't even know. Um, I was just looking through my notes for, um, something else. Uh, I had a note here that I thought was cute. Oh, okay. A couple notes. One was quarter of the way into this match, Danielson crashes into a barricade in front of a woman and she gives like a genuine, like terrified yelp. And then as Danielson starts getting attacked by Nigel right in front of her, she goes from like terrified yelp to she's absolutely tickled pink. This is happening right in front of her. And I thought just, if you want to find like a good, adorable fan moment, that was a good one. Um, let me just see. I was trying to see. Uh, I, I, I like at one point Nigel. He tries to get Nigel to tap out, and he says to Nigel, Danielson goes, "Come on, Nigel, tap. It's only one fall. It's only one fall." I, I like that he was kind of mocking him, trying to. I thought that was also like smart psychology, like the idea, like trying to convince him, like, "Hey, you could tap now. You, you could still win the match. Like, just tap out. It's just one fall, buddy." I, I liked him being kind of a dick doing that. Um, yeah, Danielson bloodying, bloodying uh, Nigel's nose was crazy because like you can see it happen like you can see him grab his nose smack his hand and then instantly the nose starts bleeding i thought msl aka jared david had a good line on commentary too this is what i was looking for the note where as prezak is reeling off like all the names that danielson is defeated during his title reign uh, msl just goes you know you've had a good reign when you've beaten three or four chrises alone which i thought was like a cute line but then i started thinking about it's like well there's certain promotions where like you had been a promotion that had like Benoit and Jericho. You could have gotten at least two right there. But um, I did think that was a good line. Um, over my notes. There was so much stuff in this match. I wrote a lot of notes, but we've covered most of it. Um, Brian even broke out the cross art German suplex. You don't see that much from him. I've also, okay, I will say this. I've never seen more visible spot calling from Brian Danielson than this match. He was like very obvious at different moments with it in a way I don't see from him. So I, I, I don't know if that was another thing. Maybe he was rattled in some way. Maybe Nigel needed more help because of the concussion. Either way, we get to the end segment and we also have a great postscript from Wade. That's a really interesting note. I like, but, um, so after the draws announced, crowd chants for five more minutes, and then they give a big ROH chant. You may have been able to tell from the cut there that we had some audio issues. One fan chants, one more hour. After a while, Nigel gets to his feet, and we can hear him say, I'm going to be sick, in like a real legitimate way. Like this, that didn't seem like him selling to me. That felt like he had a concussion and he was feeling queasy. Um, Nigel salutes the fans as they cheer for him, and Danielson is still there, selling motionless in the ring. Minutes after that, she hasn't moved still. Nigel then kneels beside Danielson as he and the refs spend quite a while checking on him. Um, students come in, pour water on Danielson. They're like really selling that he was basically knocked out cold at that finish and that he was saved by the bell. Um, this goes on for a while. Like I timed it off to check later in my notes. Um, Nigel then tells him as Danielson starts to stir, he's going, you know, you were just knocked out. You were just knocked out. As Danielson finally starts to move just a little bit. The surreal, and I wrote my notes, the surreal reality of wrestling is a guy who is suffering a real concussion having to comfort a guy pretending to have a concussion because <laughs> that's exactly what was happening here. Um, Danielson wakes up and then acts out wanting to throw up. He's retching as Nigel tells him not to be sick. Again, I think Nigel was legit just saying to the camera that he was going to be sick a few minutes earlier because he has a concussion, and now he's comforting a guy who's pretending to do that. Um, Danielson is 
selling for so long that you can honestly, honest to God, you can hear one fan shout out, "Hey, isn't there a cop over there? Maybe he knows something. Like, like maybe this cop can help." <laughs> um, more retching from Danielson, more students in the ring, and Danielson finally slowly makes his way to the feet, his feet before almost collapsing again. Nigel hugs Brian. Brian then gets handed a mic, and he's still selling being fucked up. Brian tells Nigel that he's been his toughest opponent in a totally humble voice that Brian hasn't used during this title reign. Like, there's no trace of, like, the kind of cockiness that's normally in his mic work for this title run. Um, he Brian says, people have been asking what's going to happen with the pure title belt now that I have it. Brian says, although they're retiring the pure title belt, the physical belt belongs to the person who made it. And he hands it to Nigel. Nigel accepts it. He throws it over his shoulder. Then Nigel grabs the mic and says things I can't make out over the PA, unfortunately, because yeah, Nigel yeah. has a softer voice. Yeah, and I think I think this is because he was concussed. He de- he didn't think to like project, I guess. Yeah, I, I listened to it a few times. I couldn't make it out. It's just mostly I could tell him being complimentary to Brian. They shake hands. Nigel raises Danielson's arm. Brian leaves the ring, struggling to walk and again collapsing and retching. I wrote, Matt, I appreciate them selling the finish to put over how badly Danielson was hurt. But, man, that was eight minutes of Danielson selling from the end of the match to the moment he got back to his feet. And I also wish we could have heard whatever Nigel had to say. But they definitely tried to really, even though this was kind of knowing this was the end for their feud for a while, they really tried to put over Nigel in that sense. Um, and also, yeah, they, they wrote out the idea that you're not going to see Brian holding two belts, you know, that they've retired the belt, even though that last show called it unified, really, they just give the belt to Nigel and, and the, the reign of the belt. And that brings us to Wade Keller, who had some interesting notes. Sounds like he was backstage for this. Um, Wade wrote, the crowd gave the match a standing ovation for a couple of minutes. Then Nigel finally got his win and struggled to his feet. Once he got to ringside, he noticed that Danielson wasn't moving. He hadn't moved or twitched since the bell rang signaling the draw. RH personnel entered the ring and began checking on Danielson. He dry heaved and gasped for breath. There were no indications of a neck injury, but more just sheer exhaustion and perhaps being knocked out or suffering from a concussion. There was a grave sense of concern as the fans stopped applauding and just stood and watched. Despite it being 11.45 p.m., almost nobody left as everyone wanted to see if Danielson was okay. Danielson finally regained his senses. By this time, Nigel had entered the ring to check on him. Danielson stood unsteadily and asked for the mic. He told Nigel that he was his toughest opponent and said Nigel deserved to possess the pure title, which is being retired since it belongs to the person who made it. Nigel told Danielson he is his toughest opponent, too, and about as goddamn real as they come. When Danielson got backstage, colleagues were concerned for him. When asked if he was okay, he looked down and tried to hide a sly grin, then said he was just, he just was fine, as if to indicate he was always fine, but proud of how believable he was in selling the effects of the grueling 60 minute battle. In the locker room, Nigel appeared to be the worst for wear, slouched in his chair, looking utterly exhausted, while within minutes, Danielson appeared to have recovered as if it were just another day on the job. The wrestlers and others involved in the show hung out as the ring was taken down and equipment was put away. Some talked to each other, some on their cell phones, some signed autographs, and others just sat around impatiently waiting to leave. About an hour after the match, final after the final match, everyone collected their bags, figured out driving partners, and head to Chicago for the show the next night. So that last part, Wade, I don't know if you need to bring up just the random things that happened at the end of the show. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that was a really interesting note because we have been talking like, like Nigel's looking like completely beat to shit on matches. And you noticed that during the match. So I, I thought to this note, like as you were talking, like this was a match where, yeah, Nigel looked completely just beat to shit on this match. And yeah, and 
Brian Danielson, apparently, from what Wade saw, was fresh as a daisy. And I'm sure nothing bad will happen physically to Brian Danielson ever again or even the next night. <laughs> now, Matt, that's the show now before. Normally, we would go to first our overall review, which is our overall thoughts. But it is time, I would believe, for the Matt F Award. The first ever Matt F The Award. Matt F Trophy. Trevor. The Matt F Trophy. That's a very important detail. Um, well, that means you have to send it to somebody. Yes. Well, so – so first of all, I will give my final thoughts on the show, and then I will award the Matt F. Trophy. Okay. So my final thoughts on the show is this was absolutely like a B show to the point where I – I think this is really when they, we start to get to the point where it's like, all right, maybe they have too many shows um, as far as like quality control is concerned. Like obviously I'm not going to say they should have had less because obviously they need to make their money, but like – it's really hitting some of these shows as like these are not always must see shows anymore. That said, you know, as we know, the, the the floor is high for ROH. I think this is one of the lesser shows of the year from top to bottom, but like shoot, there's still some really memorable stuff here. You know, the tag title match is really good. That main event, whatever you think of it quality wise, I'm gonna remember that match. You know, like that's a that's a wild and different kind of match and a different kind of vibe. Some of these B shows are rough with the crowds though. Like, like this was, this was just, it just didn't have that ROH atmosphere that I love because the crowd was so quiet most of the time. But I, uh, I, I, I thought this was still, there was stuff worth seeing here. I, I still think that main event was something good or bad, something that's up to someone to decide. I guess Danielson thought it was bad. I thought it was both. Um, so yeah. Definitely B show level. All right. I was the entire show I've been wrestling back and forth with pun intended, wrestling back and forth with what to give the inaugural Matt F trophy to. And I have decided that the trophy will go to drum roll, please. Um, <laughs> Brian Danielson's headlocks Woo! receives the first ever Matt F trophy. I thought it was the most memorable enjoyable part of this show. I think that it showed a genius at work. I think it is something that I would like to see again before Brian Danielson retires. I found it incredibly enjoyable. Um, but I will tell you, just in case people were curious, what the runner-up was, what the other possible winner could have been. Do you want to guess? Um... The fan that screamed "fuck the Confederacy" uh, should have been that, uh, but I didn't notice. Uh, Matt really Seidel for his promos. Yes, that was it. It was Matt Seidel's promo. Was it really? Yes. God damn it! I, I saw. I didn't know it, but I could tell you enjoyed it. So yeah, Matt Seidel's promo, Brian Danielson's headlock. Yeah. So the trophy will be sent in the time machine to the headlock. If you watch this match anytime after I've recorded this, you will see a trophy appear next to Brian Danielson while he locks in the headlock. But Danielson is so keyed in that he does not even release the headlock when the trophy appears, manifests out of thin air. Doesn't even doesn't even cause him to <laughs> blink or release that headlock. That's how good those headlocks were. And I've always wanted to say this, um, Matt Seidel, honestly, it's a, it's an honor just to be considered for this. Trophy. Yes, so, that's right. There's no shame in it, buddy. He I've was, always wanted to say was, it's an honor just to be considered. <laughs> it, w- it was considered. So yes. it's true. So um, for my overall thoughts, I, I, I agree. I, I think this is maybe 
this might be the most B show ass B show we've seen in Ring of Honor. And I would say one of the, because of the high ceiling, I did not regret watching the show, but it was funny. I was, you know, this is the longest break we've had between shows. So I was so game to come back. And then we get like what I would think is maybe the worst show we've seen in a long time. And I, it, I, yeah. don't, I don't think it was worse than how we roll. I don't. I, 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 there were two matches I really enjoyed on the show. The, the last two, I mean, really, by really enjoyed, I mean like three and a half stars at least. I don't know if there's anything I would quite give four. Maybe the tag match. I'm not even sure if I would go four for that. I, I think the problem more is just the disappointment that certain things weren't as good as they could have been. And just even you look in that mid card section of the show where you get the Jimmy Jacobs homicide match that just does not click in a really significant way you get the claudio daniels match which is just blah you get the uh the cult tag which is fun but in again a very we're shooting for the middle of the road b-show kind of way and then you get the Seidel um delirious match which feels like the the path you know the table's been set for them to really go all out and it's decent enough it's good but it's just not it's missing out on something but yeah, there's still good work on this, and there's some of the stuff I just mentioned. I still had some fun watching it, and the last hour and a half, I guess you could say, because the last two matches take up that long. There's plenty of fun stuff to see in those matches, but I would say this is one of the more least essential shows. Although I would argue, maybe go out of your way to watch the first 20 minutes just to see Danielson be such a goddamn master at Tw- doing this. The first 20 minutes of the main event. Yeah, of the main event, I would say, yeah. You don't need to see the Briscoes versus Irish Airborne, which is another match, which is perfectly fine, but you don't need to see it. Um, and then, so, now it's time, I guess, for the TWD 500, the first annual, uh, number 500, Matt Seidel's promo, number 499, <laughs> uh, Dave Chris, number 498, Jake, no, okay, I'm not doing it. So, what I will do, get into plugs, through the years at gmail.com, that is T-H-R-O-H for through, uh, we love your emails. If you ever have something you want to say about a live note and a thought, you just want to be really nice to us, that's great. Twitter, at Trevor Dame, at Mayor MGF. And next time on the show, we'll be covering the second half of this double shot, a show called Gut Check, where Brian Danielson wrestles another 60-minute match, a 2 out of 3 falls match, this time with Colt Cabana, a match that turns out to be a incredibly significant match for both Brian Danielson and Ring of Honor for the rest of the year. Um, he gets hurt, folks. We, we've touched on it already. I guess there's no need to tease it out. He gets one of the gutsier performances so much that they call it gut check. He, it, it's a pretty gutsy performance. And that should be a lot of fun. It's great to be back, Matt. It's great to have you back in North America where you belong. Missed you, buddy. <laughs> We're here. We're in the fall now. Get cozy. Through the years is back. So until then, until next time. Have a good time. Have a great time.